Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest for this episode, I want to share some information about Co-Enterprises, my company. It serves income-producing real estate market participants through four distinct platforms. First, I advise early-stage real estate companies on securing project financing and on forming and executing operating and financial strategy. My current clients include Brick Lane, a multifamily investment and development firm who began in D.C. and has expanded to the Southeast U.S., with many acquisitions and projects, and One Circle Co., an early-stage multifamily developer and investor in Boston who was nearing their first development project. Two, career counseling for early and mid-career real estate professionals with a program approach, including two one-hour sessions and follow-up six-months progress reports. My clients range from recent college graduates to mid-career executives who are contemplating change. And three, of course, this podcast, which now, with now 58 episodes, sharing knowledge and insights of market leaders. I want to give a special shout out to my associate on this effort, Colin Madden, who provides ProScript perspective and marketing assistance to produce the podcast. And finally, for deriving from the podcast listener base, and my experience as a ULI mentor, Colin and I initiated the Iconic Journey in CRE, a community of young professionals from 22 to 40 years old who participate and contribute to online and live meetings, property tours, mastermind groups, book readings, and career resources. In summary, Co-Enterprise's mission is to provide, motivate and guide high-achieving individuals and young companies to get the results they want, and in doing so, to elevate the already D.C. area real estate community. To learn more, click on my website, coenterprises.com, or reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com to learn about any of these services. Thank you for listening. My guest today is the enthusiastic Bua Beniti, CEO of Dante's Partners, an affordable multifamily and now senior housing developer here in D.C. Bua is a native of Nigeria and became and came to the U.S. right out of military boarding school there to get a job and then go to college at NYU in New York City. He studied communications and learned about social media early on, yet was involved with an internet startup that failed after moving from New York to San Francisco. While almost being homeless, he learned about real estate through desperately leasing a four-bedroom unit in, in San Francisco and finding roommates to cover his rent. A friend from Nigeria referred him to a job in Washington, D.C. with Real Estate Research Corporation. So he relocated and thrived doing due diligence and immersing himself in that business for a few, couple of years. While there, he to expand his knowledge, he attended Johns Hopkins 
University's master's program in real estate and participated in Project REAP, R-E-A-P, real estate apprenticeship program, where I met him while teaching a class where he was a student in finance. He subsequently began Dante's Partners, his own company, providing analytical and due diligence services, primarily in an affordable housing sector. Through hard work and quality performance, he and his team have grown the enterprise now to approximately 1.5 billion of affordable housing transactions. Please enjoy this wide-raising conversation with Bua Boniti. Bua Boniti, great to see you. Thank you for joining me on Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yes. So tell me your current role at Dante's Partners, and are you the prime deal maker and strategic leader? Uh, yes, is yes. Uh, I, you know, up until maybe last month, I would reluctantly call myself a CEO, but because we've evolved and are evolving as an organization that we're basically a company of companies now, I, I am the CEO of, of Dante's Partners and several other organizations underneath that sort of an umbrella that we're in the midst of rolling out very soon. Okay. So I'll be happy to share more of that towards the end of the podcast. Okay, uh, so sure. Towards the, you know, let's just put that question over to... That's fine. Uh, and and yeah. we'll come back to this one because I think you you find it all... It would all make sense when, when, we, go to the, when awesome. we go to the interview. Yeah. I'm very fortunate to have the pleasure of leading... Uh, cadre of people. That's great. <laughs> to, to create and produce and preserve affordable housing. Well, it's great that opportunities have come to you to grow like that, which is awesome. So we needed to get into that a little bit more in detail. Still, your, your business continues to accelerate despite the pandemic yeah. with several recent acquisitions and ongoing development projects, which I would like to delve into later. What impacts, either positive or negative, has the pandemic had on your business? <sighs> I'd say the pandemic in a very positive way uh, has afforded us the ability to be a lot more focused uh, while at the same time being very efficient. I'll tell you that the benefit of the last recession, the 2008-2009 recession, really gave me an ability to tap into that energy in terms of what happened and what transpired there. And realizing that that was a breaking point for my organization at the time and figuring out a way to survive it. And I told myself that if we could figure out a way to survive that recession, that there isn't anything in this world that we cannot mm-hmm. overcome. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that at the time, up until maybe last year, right, ironically enough, 2008, 2009, we were our best years. And it also turns out too that, you know, 2020 and 2021 were also our best years. As a firm, even in the in the midst of a down in the midst of a downturn in the in the economy or pandemic, right? Have you figured out why? I I think that a lot of it just has to do with from from our point of view, we 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 saw we we saw the pandemic as a moment in time that we could we could we could either pro- be propelled. And there were, as you know, there were a lot of things happening, right, in, in the socioeconomic realm in terms mm-hmm. of folks coming to a recognition in, in all the yesterday's wrongs and in, in how 
you know, African-Americans and black people have been treated in the country, but specifically in the industry. So, you know, what, what was happening in that, in that, in that realm and for us to be able to tap into that and tap into that in a very major way for us to also look at the organization and saying, what, what, if any ways can we do away with as an organization? And more importantly, just focusing on what really makes us great. Right. So we find ourselves at that point in time just being involved in a whole host of transactions, a whole host of deals and just saying, you know what, that's, that's not that's not who we are, what we're doing. Let's just focus more on, on our core competencies. Mm-hmm. And and turns out that, you know, we, like I always tell the team now, we don't have to do every deal, but the deals that we do got to be the quality deals and deals that we can really knock out of the ballpark. And the reason why we've been very successful is because those transactions that we decided to focus on are the, tra- are the transactions that just were wildly successful for us over Good. the course of the last two years. That's great. Yeah. That's great. So let's now go back back in time. Yes. Tell us about your origins, youth and parental influences. I understand you came to the U.S. from Nigeria as a child. Tell me about your childhood how you came to America? Sure. I, I come from a family of successful entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. right? So like I always say, you know, when you grew up in a family where everyone, but every one of my uncles, but one is an entrepreneur mm-hmm. and the one who isn't is a brain, is a brain surgeon. I realized very quickly that there really isn't anything you can do that can impress anybody in the household. It just isn't, right? So what did your father do? So my father's a serial entrepreneur, right? Mm-hmm. So he is into real estate, amongst other things. So mm-hmm. he was one of the first individuals to actually introduce the dry cleaning concept in really? Nigeria. Yeah. Yeah. He you know, because a lot of you know, if you know any Nigerian, you know, one thing Nigerians know how to do is dress really well, right? And they would buy all this fly clothes abroad. And they would have to wait till their next trip to have their clothes dry cleaned. Was he college educated? Yes, he went to school. He went to he went to university in Nigeria and also did some studies abroad as well. And same thing for my mom mm-hmm. as well. So wow. very very highly educated family. Well, that's great. Um, where you know education was a focal point. But for someone like me, you know, I was just sort of I was very different. Like my my my, my siblings are very studious, but I wasn't. Like, I really wasn't really into education. And because I just knew at an early age that I just wanted to make money. Mm-hmm. I knew from a very early age that I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I wanted to own a business and nothing about what I was studying. Where are you on the, in the sibling rank? So I'm the first. You're the oldest. I'm the oldest. I'm the oldest. That makes sense. But I also had a lot of cousins older than me that I sort of, you know, at the time I was looking up to and I sort of, you know, I really sort of, I was aspiring to be like, like sure. And they were entrepreneurs too. Like right. my cousins are all real estate or no, all just, just different industries, all entrepreneurs, different industries. Okay. And I love the freedom that, that, that came with being an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. right? And the fact that, you know, they, they just sort of, you know, created their own life and lifestyle right. and everything else. So. I wanted to be that badly. So, you know, then the side effect of that was my education faltered. And no university in Nigeria would accept it. Really? Why not? Because I had bad grades. 
Oh, <laughs> Moved around as a kid, did you? I had bad grades. <laughs> so, so you know, I don't know if it was because of the shame of having a first son who who was bad in school, or 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 you know, not having any university except them. My my parents thought it. My mom my thought it best to to ship me abroad. And that's how I came to the United States. Was this something you wanted to do as well? Come to the United States? Yes. So I'll tell you that because of my siblings who did very well in school, mm-hmm. we were rewarded by always traveling to London, U.S. or anywhere nice. else in the country nice. on vacation. So mm-hmm. it was because of them. It's not because, you know, if we got good grades, then we got to travel, but my mom would not leave me behind, right? So I, I, Fell in love with America every single time we came here. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd gone to London and I knew London was not the place for me. In fact, I, I at the time I bought London, but every time we came to the states, I was just like, man, like this is the the streets are really truly paved with gold. It's how I it's how I felt, mm-hmm. and I still feel that way till today. So when the opportunity came for me, and and it was it was interesting because I do remember having a conversation with my parents. And, you know, they were, my, they were making a decision as to whether or not me and my siblings go to London or we go to the States. And I told my father that I would rather be a mechanic in Nigeria. Before we, before we jump into your trip, you're, sure. you're coming to America. Talk a little bit about growing up in Nigeria. Sure. And, you know, I get a sense you came from an educated family. So, but most Nigerians are not, I have to assume. So, are, were you in kind of the upper tier of the of the economic, uh, socioeconomic strata there, or what? You know, this is a conversation that me, my siblings, cousins, friends, and family talk about all the time, and we we we've come to acknowledge the fact that you know highly or you know educated, well-to-do Nigerians, you know, are sort of the one percent. But I'll tell you that. We never felt that way. My, my, my siblings never felt that way. I, and we still don't feel that way. <laughs> right? We, 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 we never looked at it that way at all. We just looked at it like most of us who grew up in Nigeria, most Nigerians, frankly, regardless of what socioeconomic class they're in, all go to high school. Right? The big difference is whether or not you go to college and whether or not there is actually any job for you. So what you're going to encounter when you go to Nigeria is a bunch of very brilliant people. However, the employment opportunities are lacking. Well, you grew up in Lagos, right? I did. Which is the largest city. It's the largest city. And it's as big or bigger than New York City, if yes. I'm not mistaken. And it's right? very bustling. It's Listen, I go to Nigeria at least still once a year every really? year. And the level of inspiration that I get out of just my travels it's, it's, it makes me appreciate every single thing that I do here in America. Because if I were to do what I'm doing in Lagos, it would be 20 times as hard or 20 times more difficult, right? And there are people who are doing it. Tell me why. Because, so, 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 I mean, you know, one of the things that we talk about, right? I'm, I'm sure you, I can't believe I'm about to say this. <laughs> one of the things that we talk about is, 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 there is some level of inefficiency when it comes to actually just getting things done, right? So you and I take for granted right now this 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 engagement that you and I have, right? You send me an email and you say, oh, we're meeting at 11 a.m. And I go, bet, done, let's make it happen, right? That 
the, 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 that, for that to happen, for that to happen is, is slim to none, right? So even if, why? Even if, because, because it's just the culture, right? Because, because if, if I'm going to a meeting and I want something from someone that's very important, right? They, they could have a whole bunch of things that could come up during the day and my 11 a.m. appointment could easily be 2 o'clock, could easily be 4 o'clock, wow. could easily be 5 o'clock. So there's no discipline on time is what you're saying. Is for, the, for the most part, right? And I think that, you know, and, and folks are figuring out a way to, 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 and they figure out a way to get around that, right? So if I have a meeting in another state, right? Like right now, if I had a meeting in New York, I know that I can go to the, I can go to the union station, get on the Amtrak at 5 a.m., do a 9 a.m. meeting and come back the same day. Sure. But if, if I were to do that in Nigeria, I'm probably better off leaving a day or two ahead of time. Right? Because you never know what's going to transpire. So tramp travel there is inconsistent. That too, right? And and you have to figure out a way to live within that and not be that person to complain because it's just the way of life. So when I go, I'm very compliant and very sort of amenable to everything that comes. This is interesting. Yeah. So what you're it's interesting. It's a it's a whole cultural framework. Yes. It's different. Yes. And it's not and, and for Nigerians in Nigeria, it's not a bad thing. It's just a way of life. Right. Right? And a whole bunch of good things. I don't want to make it sound like no, it's like at the end of the day, like I said, I go there, I, I visit there regularly, and I, and every time I go, I'm am, I'm amazed by something new. Someone is doing something incredible, and I sit down with that individual, and I'm just sitting down and listening. And you know, they turn to me and they go, "Well, what are you doing?" And I tell them, and, and they're like marvelled by what I'm doing. I'm like, "Forget what I'm doing. What I'm doing is in pills in comparison to what you're doing. Pills." So, would you ever go back to do business? No, <laughs> no, I don't want to. I'm too lazy. I don't want to do business in Nigeria. I have no intention of doing So you have no real, you know, the heartstrings pulling you back saying, you know, I've done well. I've made my, I've made my fortune in America. Let's mm-hmm. just assume you do. Mm-hmm. And I want to go back and help my home country mm-hmm. and help them get their act together mm-hmm. and whatever. Do mm-hmm. something, create something or do something. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. I, I, let's just say, let's just say this. I live, I live vicariously through my friends who are doing that right now. As far as I am concerned, I am, I, admittedly, I'm way too spoiled. I think that that's, that's just my issue. I'm way too spoiled in terms of how business is done in the States. And life here. And life here. I, I mean, but, but even, I mean, at the end of the day, I think I can have a relatively good life and frankly, maybe even somewhat cheaper life, right, mm-hmm. in Nigeria. But as far as, Doing what I love to do yeah. here in America, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm just way too spoiled, and it's gonna take a lot, right, mm-hmm. of me mentally speaking, to be able to adjust to that way of life. Sure. Right? So it. you know, you, you know, like, but maybe thirty, forty years from now, you might. Then, we'll, so we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, yeah. you know, a whole host of things would have to happen, right? You know, like power is still a major challenge, right? Like again, you know, I come to my office and I flick the switch, and there's power. That's, that's not necessarily the case, right? So, again, you have to adjust to having power sometimes, right? In addition to, like I said, a host of other things. But yeah. there was still a lot of good that comes from that. But it's that resiliency, right? Right, And that's the thing I always tell everybody. You're, you're going to be hard. 
if you ever like the notion of coming across a lazy Nigerian is just an oxymoron. Because the sheer resiliency that Nigerians have, interesting, right? And the ability for us to be very, very resourceful interesting. is what makes us very wildly successful. So you have to be a self-starter there. You, you, go anywhere in the world. Go anywhere in the world. And and let me know what your encounters are with a Nigerian. Anywhere in the world. And I dare say you're you're gonna be flabbergasted by what So you're other African African countries don't compare in essence to Well, Nigeria. we're not gonna say that because I could get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not necessarily gonna say that. I mean, you know, Nigerians can be you know, there's this thing that Nigerians say, which is, you know, Nigerians know, know they carry last, right? So it's basically saying, like, Nigerians don't come last. Like, we, we come first in everything. Within Nigeria, you have, I assume, a lot of cultures. Yes, a lot of cultures. Mostly tribal cultures yes. that go back yeah. thousands of years. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. so yeah. I'm sure there's rivalries within the country. And, yeah. 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 Yeah, they are. But at the end of the day, I think that, you know, look, it's no different than America. Right, like right, and you've got it here. But at the end of the day, I think that you know we sort of have a common thread in some instances, right? And that common thread is capitalism, right? right? And when when capitalism is involved, it doesn't really matter what political affiliation you're a part of, right? We'll figure out a way to do business together because at the from, end of the day, from your lips to God's ears, <laughs> unfortunately, that often isn't the case. It's not often the case, but I, it's not. And I think at the end of the day, what you're going to find out is. For those individuals who are able to put their differences aside, those are the folks that you want to work with. And it's the same thing there as well. It's like, I don't necessarily want to work with, I don't want to, I don't want to go somewhere where I'm not invited. Right. And it's the same thing here in the States, right? So, and that's how I look at it. Interesting. Yeah. But again, the resiliency, I just want to, you know, emphasize it's that resiliency is what makes us very, very resourceful mm-hmm. and figure out a way to find the good in everything, right? Which is why I always say, like the streets of America paved with gold. I knew that from the day I came here. So was it a culture shock when you moved to New York City? I mean, that was your first foray. <laughs> I mean, to go from from Africa to New York City, it's like, oh. <laughs> so so it, it, it was a culture shock in many respects. But, you know, again, thankfully, my parents had sent me to boarding school. Right, uh-huh. so I went oh, to I, know that. I went yeah. to a military boarding school. Oh, right. So I've been disciplined in Nigeria. In Nigeria, okay. So I've been disciplined from the age of eleven, Got it. right? Which is when I went to boarding school, right? So I basically left my house. So my was it real strict? Up. It was, yeah. It was, yeah. Do you do you know what it means to wake up every morning and do drills and still get do drills and, and, and drop and do fifty? Yeah, yeah, and all yeah. That like, stuff? yeah. It's like yeah. It's like it's like a boot camp. Right, right, and but and, and also like wash your own clothes, iron your own clothes, and think about like the way, like think about the way the the, the shirt and the clothing have to be starched because they need straight lines. Like that's why many people see me dress up now. They're like, "Damn, boo, you're so sharp." Yes, because I picked up all those habits when I was 11 years old. Right. So, you know, and still go to class and still study. So and <laughs> your siblings didn't have to do that because they had good grades and they could stay at regular school. Yeah, and they went to, you know, they went to private school. <laughs> uh, so you got discipline. I got discipline. I went to, I went to military high school. Wow. Right. So, so the level of being alone and being independent was nothing new to me. Got it. Right. So me coming got to it. New York, 
we all I really my focus in New York was okay. How do I assimilate? Right? How do I you sure. know? How do I assimilate into yeah. this culture? Yeah. And I would tell you that the most overwhelming thing for me was the subway system, right? Because yeah. that to me was just like, whoa, what what's <laughs> this? Like uptown, downtown, like how does what what is this? Right? right so right. so I I would say that was like I I, I still I'm telling you till today every time I step on the platform of the New York City subway system. It takes me back to circa 1996 because I'm just like, okay, calm down. Like the anxiety just comes back the same way right. when I came to America. Right. But you know, like with everything else, you you adjust, you learn, and you know, you take the wrong train. So every time. time I do this New York subway, <laughs> if, if I'm in the you know 42nd Street station going get, waiting for the what's the the S line that goes across, mm-hmm. which is. <laughs> Perhaps the most crowded point in the entire system is a madhouse. But, you know, like Frank Sinatra said, right? Was it Frank that said, if you can make it in New York City? That's right. And that is the reason why I went there, right? Like, for me, it was, I, you know, like, give me, and it's it's still the same thing until today, give me the hardest, the hardest thing you can think of. And that's what I want to do, right? We had, you know, it's funny, I remember other parents talking to my my, my mom, like, are you sure you want to send your child to New York, right? There's all these cases of, of, of robbery and murder. Your son could be influenced by, you know, by bad people and he could go a different route and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I told my mom, I was like, look, the only reason why I want to be in New York is because I know that by being in the city, finding a job would not be an issue. If you send me to one of those suburban schools, mm-hmm. Like, how do I make my way back and, right. and, and, and and seek employment? I was like, Mom, I have to be in the city. Yep. This is the reason why. And and luckily, you know, my parents left me alone. So you went to NYU. Why there? So before NYU, I actually went to a community college. Oh, you did? Yeah, so I did. I went to community college first because I did not fully understand the American educational system, right? And I felt like I'm better off crawling before I walk and or run. So why not sort of start small, you know, sort of gather my life together. Is this in Manhattan? This was at Queensboro Community College. Queensboro. Yeah, so I went to Queensboro. And that talk about culture shock, right? Talk about, you know, just, just, you know, you know, having a guidance counselor. So that was like the first time I ever knew what that was. And I was like, wait, I actually have someone that would listen to me right. and talk to me about my career path and all the things. Was he or she helpful to you? He was extremely helpful. So he was actually the reason how I got into NYU. Really? Because he, he saw this young man that had, you know, huge aspirations and huge goals and great grades. So first time in my life, I had good grades. Like I made the honors roll. Can you believe that? Like I went from not having good grades to actually like making the honor roll. And because one word maturity. Yes, 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 yes. I, yes. And <laughs> because of that, he really encouraged me and said, you know, NYU only accepts about five students a year, and I think you would make an ideal candidate. Awesome! And that's that's how that's how I got into NYU. That's great! Wow. So, what did you major in there? I majored in communications, and the main reason is because I was really undecided, and I saw NYU as a melting pot of a lot of schools. So, NYU is one of the few few universities 
that have a lot of schools, right? They have school of art, school of education, business. school business. Right. I mean, the entire gamut. And the communication degree was the only degree that afforded me the ability to just make up my own curriculum, so to speak. And that's why I went on that path. So I basically took classes in every single school at NYU because I was still finding myself in terms of what it is that I wanted to do. I knew I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just did not know what industry. Yeah. So being forcing myself to be exposed was, was what I really sort of explored and, and, and pursued while on, while on campus. So, did you stay in touch with your guidance counselor from your your Queensboro? Bad at staying in touch with people. So no, yes, uh, no, no. But I did, I did, I I did go back and shared with him my acceptance letter. Uh, I did go back. I remember. I actually remember. And you know, he he was very um he was very emotional. I remember the day, and I was like, "What's wrong with you?" Like, <laughs> but he was very very emotional. If you could stand, if you could call him today and uh-huh. tell him what you're doing. He'd be very emotional. Yikes, why are you doing this to me right now? I, it's, like, <laughs> it's like, am I talking to Barbara Walters or something? Like <laughs> no, seriously, if you called him today, if he's still there, it would be mind-blowing to him about that. I, I, yeah. People like that love to hear from people that they helped and they see it done successfully. Just, just you know what? You're giving me an idea. You've actually given me an idea. Maybe I'll go, I'll go, um, I'll go, I'll go look for him. Yeah. Yeah. I'll do my He's research. Still there. Days, I'll Cause he'll, you know, it's like, he'll, he'll, he'll break down probably. If you said he was emotional with that, he was, he was emotional. He'd be very emotional yeah. to hear what you're doing now, I would think. You, you can share this podcast with him. I will. <laughs> I will. I, I definitely will. <laughs> so, so then what? You you finish uh, school yes. at NYU. Then then what are you thinking? So my goal at the time, my goal at NYU was I needed to make sure I had a job before graduating from college. Mm-hmm. That was my number one goal. Okay, and it happened. Actually, it happened way before I graduated because I was very successful in securing a bunch of internships. So every semester I did something different. I did a different internship. Did your parents help you pay for tuition or Yes. So my my parents did, but at the same time too, they they you know, my parents, you know, my parents are funny because, you know, for, you know, they always feel like if you value something, you've got to pay your portion as well. Mm-hmm. Right? So I would say they paid for Three quarters of my tuition, and I and I end up paying the balance. So you had skin in the game. I had skin in the game. Everybody has to have skin in the game. It's only fair, right? It's only fair. So it's funny because it took me a year later to go get my actual physical degree because I still owed money, right? Mm-hmm. And we sure. can talk about that later and how that transpired. But yeah, but everybody had to have skin in the game. Uh-huh. It's just with my parents. Yeah. Yeah. So then you had internships. I had internships every semester. My dad wasn't too thrilled, but because he didn't, he really wanted me to make sure I got the experience of college right. and not focus on the dollar. But I, again, talk about consistency. I was like, but dad, you know, I've always been focused on the dollar, <laughs> right? If it's but you're living in New York City. I mean, I don't know of a denser campus in the, in the country than NYU. Yeah. I mean, it is very urban. Very. There is no, 
not much green except for the parks that are in New York City, and that's about it. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, and that's you know, it's 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 you know, it's what makes New York very unique, right? Right, right. So, so I assume you made you made you networked a bit there. I did. You got to meet a lot of people. I did. I did. I would say my college roommate Alex Borisov was wildly instrumental, right? So this is when I really started to, because, you know, my family wasn't from here. So right. you can imagine right. what Thanksgiving was like for someone like oh, me, yeah. right? You can imagine what Christmas was like for someone like me, because I never really got to go home on major holidays. And mm-hmm. so for a while, I would just be by myself, right, on those days. And talk about culture shock when I go into, like, Rosh Hashanah with my with my college roommate, right? I'm like, well, like, what is that? <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And they would invite me. They were like, no, come over. And, and I remember they had a ski lodge in Vermont. Uh-huh. So this was my first time skiing with a whole bunch of white people. Wow. Right? Like, yeah. And, you know, luckily for me, they opened a lot of doors for me. You know, That's again, great. exposure, they opened a lot of doors for me. And, and funny story, years later, so he ended up becoming an attorney at a major law firm, only for him to be working across the table from my wife. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> was this after you were married? Or yeah, yeah, after, oh, after, oh. way after. Like, oh, like, okay. like, maybe like, yeah, like, like, we're talking about like maybe like four or five years ago was when that happened. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. So, and, and it was, and, and it was because obviously my wife has my last name and he was like, oh, by any chance, do you know? You know, boo up in ETA. She was like, uh, yes, my husband. And in her mind, she was like, what did he do now? <laughs> That's funny. And he was like, no, nah, no, nah, we were college roommates. And she was like, no, like, I've read so much about you. My husband always talks about you. Like, you don't want to expose him to skiing and a whole bunch of things and all the Jewish holidays and everything else. Yeah, so like, Mm-hmm. Right, so you think about that, and like how life can be full circle sometimes. Yeah. So that must have been a real educational experience. That, you know, you're going to school, but you're learning the culture. You know, I mean, yeah. NYU is maybe half Jewish. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. pretty heavy yeah. influence. Yeah. And that's you know that's what I think. You know, like you know when people say, "Is there anything you change?" I was like, "No, I can't think of anything I can change because." As a society of, of, of different cultures, right, of different religious, you know, affiliations or mm-hmm. what, what have you. It's like, yeah, like, I love to hang out with black people. Like, I love my black people. I love to do everything that black people do, right, from hip-hop concerts to mm-hmm. soul food and everything else. But I also love rock music and I love alternative music, right? And I want to be exposed to that. And I think that's what makes you or anybody, particularly me, a very well-rounded person. And I would tell you, if I tell you the places in the world that I've traveled, you will be shocked to know that I've actually, like, come to... Like, I just came from the UAE, right? Like, again, Dubai. Dubai. Like, I'm hanging out with, you know, <laughs> with the Emiratis, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like that's that's what I, you know, that's... I So I'm not afraid of exposing myself oh, to sure. different cultures and different people yeah, because... Right. That's how you learn, and that's how I think at the end of the day, as human beings, we become better people, and we understand each other. I don't necessarily have to agree with your religious beliefs or what what have you, but at the end of the day, I understand it, and we'll get along. Well, in my 67 years, one thing I've learned is I look in the mirror every morning, and I'm one person. 
and I'm one person and my, my family is different than me, much less my culture. So each individual has to go their own path in life. You know, it doesn't matter where your culture is or whatever. You are yourself. (laughs) The earlier you figure that out, the better, actually, honestly. But anyway, enough of philosophy. So you went then at one point, you went to San Francisco. So talk to me how your path kind of went there. So the same company that I was working for in New York, it started an online marketing division. So this was the early, early days. This was the advent of the internet. And they were trying to figure out a way to monetize the internet, right? And okay. they felt like no better way to monetize the internet than hire a young guy out of college. Had the World Wide Web yeah. even been founded? That, this literally, it, it was, it just started. Like this right. was, yeah, this was when folks were still trying to figure it out. And, and my assignment at the time, we got a contract through Jive Records. And Jive Records at the time was the record company that marketed Britney Spears, Backstreet oh, Boys, yeah, right, a lot of the you know uh, artists, very popular artists. So my job was to mine the World Wide Web to figure out what fan clubs existed for those artists. Wow! And basically act like <laughs> a fan. And basically, like, pump a lot of information through this channel. Sure. Right? So, this was, like, the early days of Instagram, right? Like, if you think about it, right? This is, like, so, so, that was, Facebook, everything, right? So, that was my job. My job was basically to... The social promoter, in essence. More or less. Like, that was what I was doing, was basically using technology to help sell Mm -hmm. records for Britney Spears and and Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and stuff like that. And we became wildly successful. Like we could actually like track, right? We could because you know fans, you know fans mm-hmm, do sure. what they do. So we became, you know, that was probably like the early days of experience and success as a firm. Mm-hmm. And my boss, so so with that, guess what was happening at the same time? Silicon Valley was now starting to become oh, yeah. a major, major mainstay. So my boss was like, "Look, we grew our marketing division from." five people and I was one of the first five people to about 20 something people mm-hmm. and my boss was like I need you to go replicate the same success in the west coast what do you think about that opportunity I was like oh man my dream is finally coming true I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur here I actually get to experiment and act like one under someone else's dime right and open up a new office figure out a way to generate business sure. hire staff and a whole, all the things that you expect to do with starting a company mm-hmm. so I basically said yes without even thinking about it I said yes on the spot and it was only on my way home I was like oh man I gotta break my lease I have to figure out a way to move my furniture <laughs> so but anyway I figured all that stuff out and I moved out west just on a whim and at the time too I was I was New York was getting the best of me Right, New York was getting the best of me. As you know, New York is a 24-hour city. And as a young black man growing up in New York, you know, I was partying every night and going to work every day. So I, I, I needed a break from, from, from the New York. Burning the candle. Yeah, I was burning the candle on both hands. And, and I needed a break from, from, from doing that. And I felt like, you know, San Francisco would give me the respite that I needed. So while in San Francisco, 
that was when I experienced something close to homelessness, right? So I lived in a hotel for six months because I couldn't find an affordable place to live, even though I was making good money. And every time I would go to look at an apartment, I would get out of bid for rent. And I was just like, this doesn't make sense. Uh, so, you know, you know, you know, I don't, I wasn't getting an apartment because of the color of my skin. Or I wasn't getting an apartment because I was not rich enough, right? So it was one of the two. And at Newly, at you the, go over to Oakland and all, look over there. So this was before I went to Oakland. So uh, the, the important story here is, I really wanted to live in San Francisco and I wanted to be somewhere close to work. Like, I love San Fran. Like, San Francisco two years. was just a beautiful place. I, know, I you know, love the landscape and I love what it did as far as like daytime activity, right? It's a lot to do during the oh. day and a lot to explore. Oh, yeah. So I really wanted to be in the midst of action and I felt very sort of upset about the fact that I couldn't like find something within close proximity to work. So I basically bamboozled myself and convinced the landlady I was the first in line at a at a rental apartment showing at 6 a.m. and I caught her while she was trying to put out the trash and I did everything imaginable not to scare her, right? Because there was this big black guy coming in and approaching. I was like, I'm just trying to rent your apartment. <laughs> and she was like, really? And I was like, and I convinced her it was a four-bedroom apartment, but it was huge, huge. And I convinced her to rent it to me and I had no business renting that apartment. It was way more than I could afford, way more. And I signed the lease on the spot. I ran back to my hotel and I put the apartment up for Craigslist so I could find roommates that very same day. Of course. And because the apartment was huge, we could actually still subdivide the yeah. living room and create another room, right, to convert it into a five-bedroom. roommates to jail. <laughs> so I ended up, ended up, we took a four-bedroom apartment and made it a five-bedroom. So you had four rooms? I had four rooms and I took the largest, you know, bedroom. And that's how I subsidized the rent. Yeah. And that was... I did the same thing. And that was the beginning for me. That was when I was like, oh. And of course, you know, like, yeah, yeah, making some extra money every month, right, to help subsidize the crazy expensive lifestyle in New York. And I was like... And that was when I got the bug. That was the first time I got the bug to get into real estate, but it was also the first time that I had experienced something close to homelessness. Even though I was making money because that didn't make sense. That still like irks me till today. The fact that wow, like good money. When, good when you see people who are homeless, it's not because or oh, they're destitute or they're you know or they're you know abusing alcohol or drugs. Sometimes it could just be they're not making enough income to be able to live in the city. And I, 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 I was like, oh, man, wouldn't it be great if someone could like solve this problem? Mm-hmm. Like, wouldn't it be great um, if someone could solve the problem? So the other thing too that 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 transpired and the other big blessing that came out of me being in San Francisco was I started reading a lot more, right? Like things I couldn't do in New York, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not doing in San Francisco. One, I'm alone. I don't have any friends. So I was basically using my time wisely, right? So I was checking out museums, doing a whole bunch of daytime activities. I picked up biking, and now that's like made me this a great city, city for that. Yeah, right. Great city. I attempted stuff and realized I don't like it, right? But I did a whole bunch of things and experimented with a whole bunch of things. But I started reading more, 
And that's when the Count of, what the Count of Monte Cristo was like the book that really sort of changed my life as, as well as reached that point at where I read two books I read in San Francisco. Shawshank sort of, Redemption. Have yeah, you seen that movie? yeah. I've seen the movie. I've definitely seen that. It's yeah. basically the same, the same story. thing. Same story. Same yeah. story. So, so that was when the whole notion of real estate and affordable housing just sort of started to pick. But, but because I was still caught up in my job, I, I didn't really explore it further. But then because of my entrepreneurial zeal while in San Francisco and all that was happening in San Francisco with a lot of startups right. that were forming wow. and people selling all their dot-coms at astronomical value, I decided to jump in that bad way uh-huh. and, and, and be part of a startup <laughs> and quickly, <laughs> quickly folded. Yeah. So at, at the same time, I now found myself for the first time in my life out of work, out of work. Yeah. first time in my life, unemployed. So, so I was like, oh, I'm going to make the most of it, you know, like be a hippie and like, you know, like, you know, you know, do the things that I never got to do because I was working all the time. And I was like, oh, I'm going to become a lawyer. Right. I was like, I'm going to become a lawyer. I'm going to take the LSAT. So I, I signed up for the LSATs and I was like, I'm going to become a transactional lawyer. Not mm-hmm. sure what kind of transaction I'm going to become a lawyer because lawyers are smart and lawyers, right. you know, are strategic and sure. they know. And I was, I've always been very curious about American law. Mm-hmm. Like I've always been very, very curious about American law and how laws can be manipulated to, you know, people say benefit of the doubt. Like, what does that mean? But okay, right. I want to learn all of these things. So I started to take the outside such that I could become a lawyer. And at the same time, Word got out quickly that I was out of work. And other startups, other known startups, had started to reach out. Because I developed some form of reputation as a sure. sort of like guy who can execute. I'm not the idea guy. I'm just the guy that you give the idea to and run. I'll just run with it. So a friend of mine, older brother, started a company out in D.C., and he really encouraged his brother to, to talk to me. And his brother was very hesitant in talking to me because his older brother was telling the younger brother, anybody who's friends with you, I don't want to hire because you party too much. So if you party too much, you guys are birds of the same feather. And my friend said, yes. Did you know him from New York or what? I knew him because he and I actually went to high school. And we, we, we lived in the same neighborhood in Nigeria. Oh. Yeah. Okay. But we stayed in we stayed in touch. I see. We stayed in touch and and he said, Yes, who likes to have a good time, but we also hated him because somehow, some way, he was always getting good grades and no one knows how. So we suspect that after he went out partying with us, he would just as a, we would go to sleep and he would just pick up the books and just keep reading. Mm-hmm. Which is true. That's how that's what I did. So they reluctantly interviewed me, and it was love at first sight. I fell in love with the business model, and I knew that not only would the company succeed, I could really help. I could really add a lot of value to the company. What company was it? 
So the company is called Real Estate Research Group. It was based on oh, sure. DC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was a firm started R-R-C. by Yes. It was a firm started by Jared Pine and Andrew Chukura. And all they did was audit leases for Fortune 500 companies. That was it. And the company had just started around the time when I came in. I told them, I said, gentlemen, don't pay me a salary. The only thing you should do is move my belongings from San Francisco to DC, which at the time was maybe four or five thousand dollars, and don't pay me for like ninety days. And if you feel like on the sixtieth day that there is a rapport and synergies between us, sign my contract that starts post ninety. And they were like, "Oh yeah, we'll take you up on that offer." So the day that I was supposed to take my LSATs was the day that I moved to DC. Said nope. I said no to that. I was like, I'll be able to hire lawyers in the future. <laughs> I don't need to be called. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's how I eventually ended up in DC to come work for this company. And that was when I realized that real estate was my calling. Interesting. Yeah. So you you took a it's more or less a due diligence job, basically. Yep. In essence. So you were doing Professional due diligence for, for clients, in essence. Is yeah. that what you were doing? Yeah, I was basically matching the finance books with right. the legal aspects of right. the transaction. Yeah. That was my job. So mm-hmm. I was effectively almost like, I mean, I, I love law, right? How did you learn the terminology? Just by reading a lot of just, leases? I just picked up the leases. Yeah. And every lease has a preamble. Right? It's like the term. Okay. It's 10 years. The rate. Yeah. <laughs> the base rent and the operating rent. There's language in those leases that yes. you really have to learn. Absolutely. And and don't get me wrong, but but I think like with everything Subordination, else. for instance. Like with every subordination, <laughs> indemnification, but like with everything else, it's like I've never been afraid to ask. Of course. Right? I've never been afraid to ask. So the things that I didn't know. Sure. I basically just harassed people and I was like, can you, can you just explain this to me in like yep. language terms? And and that's how I got to know all of those terminologies within the leases was because, you know, and by the way, but you see it so, I, like, I read, like, my job was the quality control guy. So every time we would sign up a tenant, like we signed up Ford Motor Companies, I would drive out to Detroit. I'm the one copied all the leases that Ford was involved in throughout the entire country. And I would ship all those leases back to D.C. And I would have to go through each and every single lease to figure out a way where the value was. It's great training. Oh, no. I I, I, I love that job. It's great training. I love that job. I love that job. Yes, that's awesome. So that's that's a good foundation for the real estate career right there. Yep. In fact, people listening... If you do anything, learn to read a lease, yep. interpret it, and translate that to a financial statement. Yep. That's, that's it. What do they call it? They call it abstracting the lease, right? <laughs> there you go. That's, a, that's <laughs> what I was doing. You exactly. got abstract. Exactly. Yeah, so you were at the RIC for how long? So I was there for, gosh, maybe a little over two years because because I was I was there up until right before, I want to say I graduated from Johns Hopkins. So this was around the same time that I was we in met. Reed. Yes, this is around the same time we met, right? Because I was in Reed and Johns Hopkins at the same time. 
right? Right. Again, not sure why I did that, but did you? Were, I'm trying to remember. Were you in the program when I was teaching with? Yes. You. You. So you actually? Yes, I took your class. Okay, <laughs> I thought so. I did take your class. So. Yes. Yes. So, so you, you can see firsthand the product of your teachings. <laughs> Yeah. Was Brian Barlow also? There? Brian was there. Brian was there as well. Right. Uh, there's a gentleman from, what's the big mall? Simon Companies. Simon Properties. Yeah, Simon Properties, yeah. So, sure. so no, I mean, it was, you know, like, I, I, I'm sure you know this, but it's the exposure, right, that yeah. you and others, particularly what Mike Bush did. Oh, is, Mike's great. Right, I can still tell you, like the classmates that I have from Reed, like they're doing amazing stuff, right? Yeah. All doing amazing stuff. So you know, whatever you all do, please don't, don't, don't ever once think that that was done in vain. No, there are a lot of good things that came out from exposing young black kids, black and brown kids, into real estate because most of us, like we, we all got into every one of us got into the industry. By happenstance. It wasn't like we had an uncle or a parent or a parent who was in real estate. No, we got in real estate because folks like yourself took the time to educate us. And we've seen what that has, I mean, you know, I think I'm a prime example of, of what that exposure can do to a young black man who is never exposed to that type of, you know, industry. For those listening, if you haven't heard my interview with Mike Bush, who was the founder of this. It talks about the foundation of this program and what Pua is just talking about. And it's it's just very special what Mike did. He was a senior guy at Giant Food and decided, you know, I see a lot of people in the community that really need help. And he was able to come up with the idea to do this, which is spectacular. Really? And I'll tell you, you know, again, like I said, big shout out to Mike. But the other thing for the listeners to know is the reason how I got into the program was because I was going to a lot of industry events that Mike Bush would attend. So after I sent my application in, I would always see Mike at those events and I would just go stand next to him. Hey, Mr. Bush, um, I just, I don't know if you know me. I'm Boo Benitia. I applied for the program. Please consider my application. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I'll see him again another event, and I'm like, "Hey, Mr. Bush, I I know who you are. <laughs> I, okay, I'm glad you remember me, but I just want to reemphasize how much I would really love to be part of this program. Please, I know it's very very competitive. Please consider my application because I really want to get in. This is going to be a, a game changer for me and my family and everything else. So I think by the fourth time, he just got tired. <laughs> So luckily, and I tell, I tell, I tell, I tell Mike all the time, like, thank you so much for accepting me to the program because it, 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 it literally changed my life. It changed my trajectory of, of what it, it led me to what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. So you, you went through that program. You, yeah. you got your master's at Johns Hopkins. Yes. And then what? So this is where, this is the one time that, that, that Mike and I, Mike Bush and I had a little bit of a disagreement. Because, as you know, the top 10% of the students are offered a job. Right. And, and I made top 10%, if not top two, because, you know, we don't, or top one, because, you know, Nigerians don't carry last. And I got offered a job, and I turned it down. And Mike wasn't too happy, because, because a lot of the firms who teach the program 
saw this as a great recruiting tool. Of course. And and to be turned down was was sort of, you know, anti what the program was all about. But again, talk about it, listening to your inner voice, right? And and Mike was like, so what are you going to do? I was like, I really want to try my hand at, at starting my own company, <laughs> right? And, and he was like, are you serious? I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm actually very serious. But what Mike did not know at the time was at Johns Hopkins, I my capstone project was a project that I was working for. I was working on for Adrian Washington. And I'd basically taken an actual real-life project that I felt I could activate. And I felt like if I could actually do it for someone else under my company's banner because I was a consultant to Adrian, I could do it. Right. And and I was getting paid to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. So if in the event that I did fail, I would call back one of those firms to see if well, they would hire me. That was the second time that we met. Yes, that was the second time we met. Yes. We, I yes. don't remember going to, yes. to NDC. Yeah. To look at the look at the performer, you were like, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, well, it was yeah. an affordable deal, mm-hmm. which, as you may recall, that's not that was not my expertise. Yep. And, uh, yep. you know, real estate economics, you're supposed to make money. Yes. You're supposed to have an, a positive net operating income. Yes. And you're supposed to have, you know, an after-debt yes. cash flow yes. with the property. Yes. But, you know, in affordable housing, it's very difficult to it's do that. flipped upside down. Yeah. The whole so, thing is flipped upside down. So you have to structure yes. subsidies in. Yes. And I did that early in my career at Aetna. Okay. Aetna had a program here in, in D.C. And we did projects with Project WISH, which was a, a local... Got what they call those entities, those uh, neighborhood entities. So it's like a CDC or something. Like a CDC. Yeah. 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 So we financed it and some projects now that are probably 10 to 20 times more valuable today than they were back in the early 90s, late 80s yeah. that we financed yeah. at that time yeah. here in Columbia Heights, yeah. actually. Yeah. 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 Different and, environment. And it was at that moment that I knew I had a niche. Because most people were running away from it, right? And, you know, true story, and, and hopefully, you know, Adrian, is, Adrian, Adrian can back this up. The reason why the project that he and I worked on as an affordable deal was because I said to Adrian, I said, Adrian, a lot of everything, a lot of everything, everything you had in your portfolio at the time was all condo deals. And this was before, before we knew the market was even going to turn. And I said, wouldn't it be great if you just diversified? Mm-hmm. And he was reluctant initially because um, it was reluctant initially, but we had an entitlement phase that we knew was going to take 12 months anyway. So I said to Adrian, I said, if I'm able to secure the financing, by the time we secure the entitlement, would you reconsider doing this deal as a affordable okay. rental deal versus doing it as a condo? Mm-hmm. And he said, we'll see when we get there, but proceed. And that's all I needed to hear. So you might have to really get sit down with the DC government. I had to do and understand every, every program. I had to do everything imaginable, like to make it work. And I and I had twelve months to do it. Right. That was it. Like I just. So I that was your first deal. Basically. That was my very first deal. Yeah. And. 
32 deals later. <laughs> right. 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 So you were purely a consultant. I was purely a consultant. So you were paid on a fee basis. Yep. Okay. I was just paid on a, on a, on a commission basis. Remember my job previously with, with RG was, was being paid on a commission basis. So I really tasted that and I was like, Oh, my income is limitless. Right. Like I'm not a salaried employee. Right. I just basically work and you pay me. Right. So I really like that. I really like the, I like the rush, right? I'm just sort of making a limited amount of money from doing real estate transactions, but you have to perform the work and you were rewarded for the hard work that you put in. And sometimes a deal doesn't happen. Yes. And then you're, you're not rewarded for the work you do. Very true. <laughs> so that's, and the that's risk. the risk. That's the risk. That's no, the risk you have to take. And, but I was, I was very comfortable with that risk. I still am. Sure. I'm never, I'm, I still am. I'm, I'm never once like, so I think, you know, it's funny, you know, and I, this is one of the questions that you're going to ask, but I'm not going to get, we'll get there because it, it, it would, my response then would, would hopefully shed more light as to why I've always felt comfortable taking a risk. Sure. So tell me how your firm evolved. I mean, did you actually, you had a company then at that point? I had a company then at the time. So yes. was it called Dante's Partners? Yes, it was named after Edmond Dante, the main character in the Count of Monte Cristo. Ah, okay. <laughs> so there's the connection. I got it now. All right. Now I understand. Okay. Yeah, that's how it came about. Got it. Yeah, because... Um, now I understand. Because this is a character who was unjustly imprisoned and found his fortune... Right? By just being a good roommate and being a good listener. Right? And decided that success was the best revenge. And I was like, and basically he was in the wrong place. He was at the wrong place at the right time. I guess that's right. And for me, I've always like, I've got to figure out a way to always make the best out of every situation in which I'm in, no matter what. Like, there's no such thing as a bad, situation right at least that's the way I see it so whatever situation I found myself in like we were in UAE the other day and, and, and the car almost capsized in, in the sand dunes yikes and I was like this is fun <laughs> I have a story to tell yeah. <laughs> right so you just have to figure out a way and that's what I learned from from, from the book so yes the, I, the company had started at the time and it was Dante's partners and, you know, it's the company has evolved since, mm-hmm. since then. So you, you work with Adrian and yeah. how did you start developing your client base beyond that? Was it through the D- connections of DC government after doing the research that you were doing? So, you know, it's funny you say that because I tell people at the time, like, you know, I need to figure out a way to get back to this. I've actually lost this. I'm a serial networker, right? Serial. And for me, I've always felt like, you know, people, people go to golf courses, which is not my thing. Like I don't, I don't really, I don't play golf at all, but I know how to, I know how to curate a really good experience, right? For, for, for folks who want to, you know, just see what the city is all about or just find really cool places to just go and hang out. Mm -hmm. So every day I had a lunch. I had a breakfast, lunch, and dinner meeting every day. Every day. That's great. Of the week. So who were your targets? My targets at the time were were 
from listening to conversations. So I met with a whole host of people, sure. but whenever I listen to someone say, ah, oh, man, like, I've got a project. I really don't want to hire someone, but I can really use the help of a project manager to just man the deal. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm going to Right? So I would figure out where the project, the status of the project at the time, and if all they wanted to do is just get to closing, I would be the one to sort of, you know, mm-hmm. manage everybody, manage the consultants, manage folks, and sure. figure out a way to get the transaction to closing. Feed right? project manager. Feed project manager. Got it. I would be in another conversation and someone would say, you know, I've got this deal, and I don't think it really pencils as mm-hmm. a conventional deal. I, re- I, I wonder if there's another way to get this deal across the finish line. Mm-hmm. I'm your guy. <laughs> can I can I just play around with the performer? So I'll play around with the performer for free. Mm-hmm. And if I could figure out a solution by playing around with the performer, guess what happened? You had to hire me to do the work, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Another client was, oh, the district just issued an RFP for a site. I don't have the manpower to sit down and write the response. Guess what? I will write. So that's what I did. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It's the same thing we're doing now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? It's no different than what we're doing now. The only difference is a lot of what I just explained, we're doing it for our own books. Mm-hmm. Right? And, you know, a few clients here and there. But those are the folks that we typically targeted to do work for. Mm-hmm. And because of the work that I did, or, or yeah, because that time I was still a one-man shop, because of the work that I did, a lot of the bankers started to take notice. Mm-hmm. And it was the bankers who encouraged me to go out and, and find my own deal, to do which at the time I didn't think that I was capable of doing. But it was the bankers. So, of course... I'm sure you heard and learned about the opportunity as a minority person mm-hmm. in the city. And, the, and it's, there's mm-hmm. obviously a mandate mm-hmm. for some mm-hmm. RFPs, certainly mm-hmm. by the city, mm-hmm. as well as in the private sector, mm-hmm. where lenders are saying, you know, we got to have mm-hmm. representation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that had to, you, you probably Absolutely. saw that and said, yeah. you know, there's opportunities here. Yeah, I did. I did, and I'll tell you. I'll tell you a great story. You know, you you may or may not know Joe Stanley, right? So Joe Stanley at the time used to work at Hispec, right? And he is the executive director of the Georgetown Beard right now. And I remember the city came up with a major. I know Anthony, yes, Lanier, yes, yeah, yeah Lanier. Yeah. So, so, but, but Lanier, you know, I, Joe was the one who really made. Joe was the one who interviewed everybody and made a recommendation to okay. Lanier. So the city had put out two RFPs for the West End and for High. And I went to the pre-bid conference and Joe Stanley was there. And Joe was like, you know, we're talking to a number of your peers. Why don't you come to office for an interview? And I said, sure. So I went to the interview and they were asking me a bunch of questions. Like, what do you do? How do you do it? Mm-hmm. Blah, blah, blah. And answered all the questions. And after the meeting, he pulled me aside and he said one thing that I guess he 
you said one thing to me. I, you know, people may or may not take this the wrong way. I did not because I saw it as great constructive criticism. You said you're the only one that came in here and, and did not sell your blackness. Hmm. Interesting. Because just because there's a mandate does not mean that you you still have, in addition to being black, you still have to add perform. value. Not just not even perform, just add value. Yeah. And I didn't see it that way when I was into when I was being interviewed. I was just I was just answering questions based on what my company had been doing at the time, sure. which was on conventional transactions. And I said to him in the meeting, and I said, guys, in fact, Philippe was in the meeting as well. And I said, look, you guys are eastbound. You do large-scale transactions all the time. If you're doing a conventional deal, I have no, you have no use for me. Like, like other than you checking a box, right, that's the only thing you're doing. And I'm not interested in being the guy that you check the box for. And, you know, everyone stood back, but, you know, that's me. I'm very straightforward. I'm very upfront. And I said, but if there is an unconventional component or an affordable housing component associated with this transaction, by all means, please consider me to be your affordable guy because here is my, here is my sort of track record of doing nothing but affordable housing deals, financing them unconventionally, and by the way, you do get to meet the mandate, right? By having a black person on your team. And, and, and that's when he pulled me aside and, and gave me that feedback. And, and it's the same thing I applied to today when we met with folks. I was like, yeah, I'm glad that you see a black man walking into your office. Good. But let me tell you what else we do besides being black, right? And yeah, yeah so a lot of those opportunities, presented themselves and and those are the opportunities that sort of allowed us and gave us the opportunity to do large scale deals. So one of my ULI mentees worked there also. Yeah. It was a German fellow by the George Walsh. Yeah. Did you know George? Do, yeah. yeah. So he arranged a tour and at the time I think JBG was also involved in mm-hmm. that transaction. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know you were in that deal. Yes. That was interesting. The affordable housing deal, the one okay. above the fire station. Right. It's a deal that we sold yeah. and were responsible for. Two or three buildings was in that complex, as I recall. Yes. One building had the, the uh, squash courts. Yes. That's the building that I was responsible for. The squash court. Yeah, building. the squash court building. Yeah. Because yeah. Lanier is a huge squash. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That was the building I was involved in. So I just said, Anthony, you focus on that one and I'll focus on this one. Mm-hmm. And that was the deal we cut. And that's and, and Anthony said, just make sure you're at the closing table when I'm at the closing table. And I said, I will be at the closing table before you. <laughs> so do you play squash now? No, I ready? do not. You don't play squash. <laughs> <laughs> not interested. You'd be good though. Uh, I don't you're, know. you're tall. You know, it's got funny. long arms. My, my dad played squash all his life. He played squash and he tried to get me, but I'm not spot inclined. I've never been sporting color. Yeah, I mean, it was just—it was just not me. Right? It's a—it's uh, a reaction sport. Yeah, it is. It is quick, quick, very quick, quickness. Very quick. It's not like tennis. It's different than tennis. Yeah, it's just a, yeah, you know. Yeah, no. In fact, I—I I told him I was like, my dad. My dad is a huge was a huge squash player, and he used to go all the time, and I would see him play, but. He would try to get me to be involved in sports and things like that, and I'd just just show me how to get to the bank. That's that's a lot interesting. You look like an athletic person. That's yeah. why it surprises me because you'd like to ride. I, I do ride. 
that's one thing I do. But you know, yeah, solo sports. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Got it. So, so you formed ventures with not only East Bank, yes, but Gilbane mm-hmm. recently, mm-hmm. Roadside, mm-hmm. and most recently Jonathan Rose Company out of New York, which yes. is a fascinating one. So. Yeah. Let's go through these relationships and how they kind sure. of evolved, if we can, a little bit. Start Absolutely. With East Bank, have you done other business with? So we did We did two transactions with East Bank, which, you know, great deals. And, you know, the way I would the way I would sort of talk about the East Bank deal was I someone just paid me to be an intern. That's sort of the way I looked at it. I got a great bird's so eye view. were you a partner? Or were you I was a partner. Okay. Yeah. I'm still, I still, I still have a partner. In those two transactions. So, Anthony, if you're listening, I'm still waiting for my dividend check. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm, uh, I'm still, yeah, no, we're still, I'm still a partner to get all the reports. I'm still, I, it, it, it's, it's a way to see, quote unquote, how the big boys are doing it, right? And that's the way I, that's the way I viewed it. I viewed it as like, okay, cool. Well, is JBG still on the deal? JBG is still involved in the West End transaction. Yeah. And so, it's because they're two separate deals. So I just sort of, you know, got to be at the table, right? To just see how large-scale development deals are done. And I attended every single meeting. I think it would tell you I was a pain, right? Like I dissected you performance. Asked a lot of questions. I was, I was, I was impressed. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was impressed. I was impressed. There's no, no question. No, I mean, I just, I just immersed myself. I completely immersed myself because I felt like that would be me one day. And I'll tell you, Anthony was very, they were very, Anthony really showed me, I mean, you've heard, we've heard, I mean, I've experienced deals where, where, where majority partners were just, you know, were just bad people. Bad, really bad people. And Anthony was the exact opposite, right? Like he, his, his doors were open. He always served delicious meals every single time we had a partner meeting. And, uh, um, no yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they were, they were great. No, they were, they were great partners. I have nothing to complain about as far as the East Bank relationship. His favorite concerned. restaurant in Georgetown is one of my favorite there restaurants. There you go. Yeah, and, and that too. So that was sort of the great introduction into, but I will tell you that, you know, the one thing I did learn out of those deals are your destiny is in someone else's hand, mm-hmm. right? And that, that irked me and still irks me till today, right? Is the fact that, you know, there are certain things that I would probably have done differently, but being a minority partner, you just don't have any say. So you're just basically rolling with whatever decisions are being made. So I promised myself, like, whatever partnerships that I'm involved in in the future, I have to be at least a 50% partner. So that way I have consent rights. Sure. And, and, and luckily that, partnership happened with Gilbane. So the Your first one with that? Yeah, so we actually entered into a programmatic JV oh, you for a thousand units. Okay. Yeah. So that and, was that was what happened. Senior sector, right? So it's in a number of deals. Okay. There's a number of deals. So what happened was I found myself in a position where I had aggregated about a thousand units. I'd entered into purchase contracts, like off market deals for a thousand units. So what was the lens you looked through to find these transactions? <laughs> How did you pick the sites? What was the, what was the criteria for that? So you had asked a question earlier about what makes me comfortable in taking certain risk, right? Right. right. And 
the number one criteria is can I get it done? Okay. That's it. Okay. Can, will this deal happen the way it ought to happen? It may not happen in the length of time that we all expect it you to You can't happen. always know that right up front. I do. Okay. Tell me yeah. how. Because I'm able to dissect all of the all of the task Got it. that I needed. And if I feel like one task is if I feel like there are way too many variables, I'm not doing the deal. But if I feel like the task is based off of an action, right? Right. If it's, if it's based off of me actually like performing in, in a particular area. So I'll give you, I'll give you, I think the, a better example is let's just say we're doing a, a, an acquisition in DC, mm-hmm. right? If we're doing an acquisition in DC, as you know, DC has what they call topo rights, right? So topo is the number one impediment to actually acquiring a property, yeah. right? So if I figure out a way to, so I have a pretty big runway, right? The good thing about those type of transactions is you have a year. You have a year. You, you actually have a year. So I basically, all I need is a year to cultivate relationships, mm-hmm. right? That's basically it. So if I feel that I can go into a community and convince the community that I am the right partner, then what are the things that I need to do in order to get you to be comfortable with me to be that partner? Well, relationships help. And that's it. I mean, you go into a community, you know who the power players are, probably, and so you want to get to know who they are. And and then with the individual transaction, though, you got to get to know the people within that complex. And that's... And, but again, real community development deals, which is what I love about the deals that we do, mm-hmm. it's no different than running a political campaign, right? So if you're running a political campaign, what is it, what are the things that you have to do in order to go secure votes? If you want to be a successful politician, you have to count every single vote. That's right. Right? You need to know the addresses of the people, you need to knock on the doors, you need to be in community meetings and go to Christmas parties and go to birthday parties and kiss the babies. And if you need to even jump in a community pool, you got to jump in a political pool. So I'm not, and I've never been afraid of doing any of the things that are necessary in order to win a community over. My my, my most recent podcast interview, yeah. by the name of Michael Broder, Okay. His company is Brightline Strategies. He was a political person. And he's taking political polling to establish for real estate operators how to attract tenants to their to their properties yep. using the political campaign approach yep. to, to reaching out because yep. it's a competitive environment and you've got to be able yep. to have a way to attract people. And he uses that strategy. It's all grassroots. Yeah. And, you know, I'm very comfortable. And, you know, the reason why I'm very comfortable is because, you know, one of my earlier jobs was working for the mayor, right, where I ran the new communities project. And the new communities project was was basically revitalizing public housing, right? So I had to go into the belly of the beach. Like, I had to go into the communities, Right, I had to take off my ties and roll up my sleeves 
sure. and sit in people's homes and see how they live and be able to convince them that revitalization was not was not urban renewal. Right? It's you know, and they had to eventually they call it. Precisely. Gentrification. Gentrification. Precisely. Right. Yeah. And they eventually had to take my word for it. So, and if I could not figure out a way to communicate with, 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 with individuals who live in public housing, it was not going to happen. Right. So the way I'm talking to you right now, I'm not necessarily be the same way I communicate with those individuals, right? I had to basically be one with them and be genuine at the same time. Yep. Knowing like, I, you know, I'm a different person. I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to act like, you know, I come from that neighborhood. No, I would never do that. Be straight up disrespectful, but I will be there. And I will show up multiple times to let you know that I'm serious about it. And some communities appreciated that and some communities did not. And the ones who did, we have the deals to. Well, you and you can take them to the projects that you've completed and say, see what we've done? We, we do that now. Yeah. We right. do that now. And, and, the, and the good thing is th- that's primarily my job now, right? It's like, yeah, you know, performer, talking to capital markets. I, I get a lot more energy and inspiration and motivation from talking directly with community members, right? And I tell everybody, I was like, here's my cell phone number. You can call me, text me, whatever you have, guys are going on. That sets you apart because a lot of people, let's get the deal done. Yep. You know, I don't necessarily want to do the the hand-holding and all that. That's not my thing, you know, but you enjoy it, which is, that makes a difference. So, if, so again, you asked the question, yeah. right? Well, how do I know, yeah. right? So you're, you're I, I, I pick one, and you know, hopefully the transaction has no more than two or three variables, and whatever those variables are, if I feel like I can, I can get to those so-called short-term impediments. Yeah, we've got a deal. So you wouldn't, I mean, Gilbane wouldn't just come to you and say, "Let's do a thousand thousand unit strategic." No, project. I had all the deals. <laughs> I had every single deal. You brought it to, you brought it to them. I found myself in a place where I I had been enough more than I could chew. And the most strategic thing that I could do at the time was go find a partner to 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 help me deliver on the promises that I had made. Why Gilbane? Ah, good one. So we actually shopped. We shopped all those deals to multiple multiple firms. Sure. We shot the deals to multiple firms and we were actually very close to going with another firm. Well, because, because, because the clock was running out. I'm throwing one out. JBG sure. Smith has a program. JBG exactly Smith. Exactly. JBG Smith has a program for the same exact thing. And I, I, I would tell you that Blaze Rostello, who worked at Gilbane at the time, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd had a prior relationship with him. There you go. Right. And he would come and park himself at the office. Right. At my office. So he would just come and just like, he'll be in DC on the, for a meeting and he would just be like, you know, I don't want to sit in traffic. Do you mind if I just park myself at your office? And I'm like, sure. So he would just come and park himself at the office. And one day he kind of sensed that I was like a little stressed because the clock was running out on all these deals that I had, um, aggregated and. And he was like, what are you working on, bro? Like, just what are you working on? And this was one of the first times in my life where I was very vulnerable. And I just basically put everything out on the table. And I just said, hey, Blaze, look, I can get all these deals. I 
I've got all these offers. People are not listening to me in terms of what it is that I want, but I may be forced to do a deal I don't want to do because, because the clock is running out. And he was like, well, what kind of offers do you have? I, I'm, I kid you not when I tell you that a firm basically just said, we'll give you a check for $5 million today and go stand on the corner and just continue to bring us more deals and we'll just do the whole thing. <laughs> and it was a huge insult. Huge insult to me. Because, you know, you're basically just keep one, keeping me quiet and, and brushing me off to the side by thinking you can just write me a check, which was pittance to what we would eventually be able to make at the end of the day. I was like, I actually truly want a programmatic JV partner where, again, like no different than my relationship with Anthony Lanier, where we learn together, we grow together, and mm-hmm. we activate together. And more importantly, it's done on a 50-50, you know, JV structure, right? Where you're bringing certain resources to the table and I'm bringing my own resources and it makes for a perfect marriage. And Blaze said, do not sign any contract until we come back to you. And I was like, whoa. I didn't even know Gilbane would be interested. He was like, no, 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 we're very interested. And the top, you know, brass at Gilbane, all of them flew down from Boston. From Actually, they, they flew down to come and meet with us. And that meant a lot. And not only did they hear us, they heard us in the term sheet that they presented to us. That's great. Right? And I was like, wow, there's hope in this world. Right? And and all the deals that we put on that list have been built today in record time, and, and we've done very very well. So that's how the relationship. So they've been they're they're the builder partner, right? They're the ones doing the construction. So they also have actually no, the construction is not part of the deal. That was my thing. My thing was like I'm really hoping like there are no shoes, there are no strings attached to the construction company, and they were like, we're, and they they were aligned with me and said we do what's best for the project, well, not what's best for. So they have a development arm, a JV arm. So our relationship is directly with the family. Because they're a construction company. They have a, yes, they have a huge construction practice. But no, we put out bids for every single project and we make a contractor. So they're purely a, a real estate they're development. Purely a real estate construction. It's a purely real estate development That's partnership. And we do what's best for the project. And if the project is successful, guess what happens? We're all successful. Of course. Yeah. So some of them are seniors' projects. So talk about yes. why, I mean, how you how the deals evolved a little bit there. So I would say a lot of that is uh, probably my fault. <laughs> because, you know, like... Was it intentional or not? So, so like, for instance, if you take the Delta project, if you take the Delta project, right? For, talk about that project. Right. So the Delta... Where, where is it and all that? So the Delta project is at the... We, we, they call it the Starbus intersection here. The right. Bladesburg right. Road and Maryland Street, Avenue. Maryland Avenue, yeah. where, like, everything intersects, right? Yes. And you've got a new street right. car. Yeah. So Street. Right. the Deltas own a piece... Own, still own, frankly, a piece of variable real estate right there on the corner. And... They, like municipalities, had a mandate to attract, you know, you know, black developers to be part of whatever they, they did. So they put out an RFP, and we were the, we were the only black-owned firm to respond to the RFP. Other majority firms had black partners, but we were the only all-black team to respond, and. 
And more importantly, not only did we respond, we were able to demonstrate to them a similar experience that we had just completed for another historical black nonprofit here in the District of Columbia. And they did, I'm telling you, the Delta is so impressive. They did their due diligence. Like, they called everybody, right, to make sure that we were legit, to make sure that we said what we're going to do. But more importantly, so we got awarded, but we had no business being awarded, to be very honest with you. I'll tell you this right Why? now. Because at the time, the sheer scale of the deal, right? We're talking about, we're talking about what over three, four hundred units, and yes, we had done deals in DC, but we had not done deals of that scale. Well, the affordable deal you did with Lanier was pretty good size, right? Uh, not that big. Not that big. Not that big. But I mean, we had done affordable deals, but nothing of that sheer. I mean, like, like. Like, we're talking about one building was almost $100 million. The second phase that we're about to embark on is, is like, what, $30, $40 million, right? So it's, it's not, it's not, not chump change. it's not chump change, right? And, and they knew what they were doing. They were like, well, you talk a big game, now go, go, you know, go back it up. And, the, the fact that they were unafraid to do that, but they also said too, but if you want this deal, you need to, you need to write this a huge deposit, non-refundable, day one. Right? And we'll give you the time you need to activate the site. So you needed a partner. Yes, I needed a partner. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, but I wrote the check. I actually wrote the check on the spot. Wow. I wrote the check on the spot because I knew, I knew that that opportunity would, would, would never come again. So I wrote the check on the front, on upfront, knowing very well that 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 may be that may be it for you, yeah. for me. I wrote the check up front, so that was risky. But yes. you knew you knew you had a sense that you could find. I something. knew I could get it done. Yeah. Again, it goes back to what I said. I knew. I knew. I I I mean, it was a buy right deal. It was a buy right deal. It was, it was, it was, it was, all we had to do was just activate it, right? So that's how Delta came about, and that's one of the multiple examples that we did, and. You know, they wanted the first tower to be seniors because we were moving the existing tenants from the from the existing senior building into the new one. Then we would just sort of free up the other side. So, so tell me about the next deals you did with Gilbane. Uh, so we did we did three hundred six Southern Avenue, which is a, which is the first affordable assisted living project in the District of Columbia. An experiment again. This was in one of those other sites that I. I really like the site. I like the intersection. I like the process. Was this a senior deal as well? This is a, yes, an affordable assisted living deal. So we, affordable assisted senior deal. Yes. To speak seniors. I mean, what, what, why that? Was it something the district wanted or was it, what, 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 what drove that? So I would say that with almost every single transaction we try to do, particularly new construction, we always try to look for a hook. Right to do something different. Like I'm always, I'm always experimenting and trying to do sure. something different. Okay. And I think in passing, we sort of, you know, DC had just sort of come out of some lawsuit in terms of not adequately providing house housing for frail seniors. Like everybody was being sent to nursing homes, even though that's not what was not what they needed. But because there wasn't any facility. To accommodate the sheer skill of seniors who were frail, you know, the, the district found itself in a place where it could not solve that problem. And here we are with a site that 
could accommodate 200,000 square foot of retail. I mean, sorry, 200,000 square foot of, of housing. We, we, uh, we decided to see if we could make this happen. So we traveled all the way to Indiana or in Chicago to go see what an assisted senior living facility looks like. And I was moved. I just, you know, just seeing the faces of the seniors there, just, you know, the way they were being cared for and being catered to. I was just like, wow, this is, this is, and in DC, right? What, you know, the thing that you need to understand is like, with, with us, you know, primarily like African Americans, right? Like some of us, we find ourselves in the sandwich generation. I remember right? taking care of our kids and taking care of our mom, of our parents. And for whatever reason, whether it's financially or otherwise, the parents end up becoming a burden as well because we can't, we don't have the financial resources to be able to sort of send them over to, to uh, assisted living facilities. And as you know, assisted living facilities can be upwards of, you know, $10,000 a month, right? Who's got that? So, so we felt like, oh, like we know people, I know people in DC who, who could benefit from, from this unique, type of housing. So we decided to, we spent maybe almost three years just researching and learning that industry and finding the right partners. And when, and it, the, the stars all aligned. And thankfully, I can't think of any other partner other than Gilbane that would have gone down this sort of, you know, crazy experimental ride with us to pull this off. And, and they, they loved it. And we, we all just sort of, you know, rolled up our sleeves and made it happen. So it's age-restricted? Is that what it is? It's age-restricted, and you also have to be able to demonstrate that, you know, that you know that you need help as a senior as well. So it's not independent. It's really sort of dependent for 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 seniors that are 62 years of age and older. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess physically. I'm, I'm wondering, is it physically independent? I mean, these are just renters. They're not... They're renters. This is not where you have assisted, you know, people, you know, nursing. And, no, we do. You do have nursing? We do. Oh, you do have nursing. We do. No, we have... Um, okay. At this property, so it's 152 units, and I think we have a staff of 30 people. Okay. Including a so nutritionist and a cafeteria. Meals and everything. everything. The whole thing. The whole thing. Got it. The whole thing. You have an operator. That's yeah, no, business. you can, you can, it's, it's, it's a hotel. That's a business. It's, it literally is a hotel. It's, it's really not, more of a business than it's a it's real a, estate. It's a, yes. Yes. Yeah. So basically we are, you know, we're joining the business yep. now. Yep. So yep. who manages that for you? So we have a company called PLC, Priority Life, that we're very fortunate to have as a partner. And they're the ones, this is all they do, right? Like this, this you know, my property management company. Are they They are not uh, from DC, but they have properties in Maryland that they manage. So we tour the facility. We, we, again, this is part of the due diligence that we had to do, right? We had to sure. basically scour the earth to yeah. figure out who the top flight operators are. And they were one of them. And they, you know, liked the facility and liked our vision as much as we liked them. And, and as much as we were convincing them, they were convincing us. So it was sort of like a marriage made in heaven. So they're the ones managing this particular property right now. For us. So you have... Two or three of those? Uh, no, one. Just one. Just oh, one. I thought you had two. Okay. No, just one. Just one. We have, we have over six or seven hundred units of independent seniors. Ah, but, but this is 
the first assisted living Got senior it. facility. Got it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you're in the space now on multiple things. Yes. You know, we, our job, our job is to get you from 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 infancy. We want to be able to have product for for newborn babies all the way to. It's almost. You're not in the nursing business yet, though. No, I'm that's not a whole business. different. No, we don't plan. We, we don't. We don't plan on being in the nursing business. No. Yeah. No, that's not. That's not. That's not what we plan on doing. We like this one. This is a really good. It's a really good. It's you know, and look, you heard the story earlier about like how and why affordable housing is needed because it's my own personal story, right? I didn't just get into affordable housing just because it was mm-hmm. the trendy thing to do. I got into it because I know, like, I encountered the same thing that most people at the time my age were encountering. So every single project of ours that we do is beyond gratifying, mm-hmm. right? Because you see the direct benefit mm-hmm. in people's faces sure. when you deliver those units. So you've done many PPPs. Yeah. Uh, public-private partnerships with the D.C. government. How did you develop your relationships there, and what impact have they had on affordable housing in Washington, D.C.? Sure. So like I said earlier, you know, it started when I worked for the mayor, the then mayor of D.C., right, Adrian Adrian Fenty. Fenty. And I was under the tutelage of Neil Albert because he was the deputy mayor at the time, and they entrusted in me this initiative called New Communities Initiative where... I was responsible for overseeing the revitalization of, you know, decrepit, you know, public housing units across the city and making sure that we did it with, the, with the tenants um, in place. So that was all affordable housing. That was 100% affordable housing with the sure. right? So it's good to see that, you know, you know, four administrations later, the commitment to affordable housing has been, has been, the number one priority, and we are seeing now with, with Mayor Bowser that she has doubled down on that investment, yeah. right? So I just find a lot of comfort knowing That's that great. you know we'll be we'll be employed <laughs> for for a long time. That's great. Yeah. So what 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 is your strategy for raising capital on the deals? And have you considered raising discretionary capital for your investment in the projects? If so, how have you approached it? So I'll tell you that personally speaking, raising capital is a weakness of mine. It's something that I personally have not been good at. With all the networking you do, that surprises me. So I would tell you that I think it's the one thing that I've just gotten way too much rejection. Interesting. For that like I'm just like I can't I can't I can't go back and keep being told no <laughs> all over again. So we decided to take a much different path, right? So the first thing we normally do is we transactions that we do, particularly on our photobars and transactions, it's just been house money. Right? We've just been hopping on one leg for a very, very long time. So that's the first thing that we did. The second thing that we did, again, was forming strategic partnerships like the one that we did with, with Gilbane, which sort of eased a lot of that pressure off of us. And the third thing that we did was really formalize um, a separate company that a gentleman by the name of Sharif Mitchell runs for us. So that's the Dante's Community Partners. 
and he is the one that's actively out there raising money for existing transactions. So the development company has its own method of raising money and the investment company has its own method of raising money. So that's the vehicle that we were successful in getting L&M, Citibank, Agent of the Roads to come in as the initial investors into that company to acquire the transactions that folks are seeing now in the form of Avanti and Tri-City. So, you know, we're still, we're obviously open for business to those who want to give us discretionary capital. Clearly, we've demonstrated that we know how to how to buy real estate, how to operate real estate, and also how to dispose of real estate. But I'll tell you that that's one area that still eludes still us till today, despite the track record that we have. So, you know, for folks listening, we're, we're, we're open for business when it comes to discretionary capital. So, Well, you certainly understand due diligence. You understand how to, how to entrust, you know, other people's money mm-hmm. with what you've done. So... Um, you've got a good track record to be able to do that. So the key is then to just build something, you know, put together a a brochure and maybe sit down with a capital raising person to help you. I would love to do that. Yeah, we would love to do that. Yeah, we we are now, we're now really, truly ready and primed for that. So if you know of any, please send them out. (laughs) I know several. Okay. Because that was my career. Okay. As you probably know. Yeah, yeah. may remember. So we should talk. It's something we'll... We'll have to sit down and talk about perhaps. So, so to date, most of your projects have been either significant upgrade renovations or redevelopments. You recently acquired a large project. You mentioned the Avanti in Prince George's County with the Johnson Rose Company. Is that a part of a new strategy, or is that something that you know you've done and now you're expanding? So remember, initially when I said that Dante's Partners has evolved, right? Is because we're now a company of companies. So we actually have four separate companies. Wow. Under okay. the Dante's Partners banner, okay. right? And Dante's Community Partners is one of those companies, and that's the one that exclusively focuses focuses on acquiring existing property. And and we were very fortunate to be awarded money from Citibank, which you know came out of all of the opera that has been taking place with the you know folks coming to the realization that. You know, African-Americans are not at the table when it comes to, you know, managing equity dollars. And in conjunction with LNL, where we were able to secure $40 million from city. So we leveraged that $40 million and, and created another JV with Jonathan Rose to acquire the Avanti apartment. So right now we are, I think, about 12, 1,300 units that we've acquired through that vehicle. We've almost burned through the money that we were given. And, you know, so who's going to manage and operate the property? So uh, Sharif Mitchell is the one who runs that company. So I'm just sort of like the, I'm, I'm the majority owner. So I just, I just sort of give, like you were saying, right? I just, my, my job is just to give guidance in terms of what it takes to run an, uh, a successful company. But he's doing a phenomenal job in terms of identifying the assets and acquiring the assets and providing the necessary asset management functionalities that are needed. And my management company manages that. So you're another company of yours. Another, another company of ours, yes, that, that I run as well manages the asset. And that company is growing leaps and bounds. I mean, I can't. It's your it's, management company. It's my management company, yes. It's doing very, very well. Mm-hmm. Very well. And so how did you create that company? What, how did that, what's the evolution of that? Uh, it was born out of frustration because fortunately or unfortunately, I'm very technical. 
I'm a very technical owner operator. I'm a very technical, I'm very technical, right? Like, and I think sometimes people forget that. Like, I really live in the numbers. And I, I tend to get very frustrated when I feel like folks are not efficient when it comes to operating a property, mm-hmm. right? And, and folks were just doing the basics. One thing that we've learned from property management companies is they're just pretty content with just mediocrity. And, and I just got frustrated. And I said, you know what? We've, we've built some assets that I think we can start a company. And in the event that the company fails, we'll just go back and hire another company. Mm-hmm. And this was, this was, wow, six years now to the day that we started this company. And, uh, you know, if you want to know what our economic occupancy was for, for the last, you know, two years, we've been averaging 95 to 97%. That's great. Economic during, occupancy. During the, during during the, the pandemic. pandemic. Yeah. Right? So it's just the way we looked at it, right? It just, it was just born out of frustration. And I don't like to complain. Like if I find myself complaining too much, you know, something is wrong. How did you find your personnel? <laughs> For that. That's been an experiment too in and of itself. Let's see. You know, I would say the very first person that worked at a property management company at the time was actually my assistant who showed a lot of interest. Mm-hmm. Right? She showed a lot of interest, even though she had not had any experience at the time okay. with managing property. She was like, no, I wanna I wanna be the you know employee number one as far as this is concerned. So okay. we we and that's what we do it, you know. I'm not a I'm not afraid of experimenting on projects. And you know what else I'm not afraid of? Experimenting with people. Especially if they show some level of, you know, fortitude and hunger, right? So you use your intuition a lot. I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. So and 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 you know, and again people, you know, I would say the word of mouth is grown significantly, right? Because there's something to be said about we're the only 100% African-American owned <laughs> affordable housing developer, right? Like, we're the only ones in the area. So we are literally on, on we, you know, I'm, I'm modeling my company after Guzudo. I'm modeling my company after Edgewood. I'm modeling my company after the big property management firms that folks have known to known to sort of um, known in the area and you know I guess they were better so that's that I, I don't know of any other African American owned firm in the area that specializes in the complexities around affordable housing mm-hmm. um, and and we do it pretty well that's great so you said you had four companies so yes a property management company that's, and you've got uh, the investment company Dante's investment We've got then we have Dante's Partners, which is a DMV. Right. Then we have Dante's Partners, NYC. Oh, in New York City. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. what's going on in New York? So <laughs> New York is gangbusters. You know, I started knocking on the door in New York in 2017, just going down there every two weeks, just you taking an Amtrak. See your old buddies there. So you see, my well, but New York also has a very strong mandate. Okay. New York has a very strong mandate for inclusivity, right? And I realized very quickly that the market was wide open. So, you know, we just do what we always do. Every time they issue an RFP, we responded. And now we've been awarded three large-scale deals, right, to the tune of almost 3,000 units. So do you have a team up there? There's a team there. It's an office, everything. 
Mm-hmm. And I get the, you know, I get the opportunity of going back to my old stomping ground once, 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 if not twice a month mm-hmm. to sort of oversee the projects that they're working on. So we just closed on a large scale 1900 units in New York acquisition. Yeah. So we're partnered with the New York City Housing Authority. Okay. So we're taking existing public housing units and renovating them. So that's, that's our second one. So we closed on the first one which is about 660 units. We just closed on 1,900 units right before the end of the year. So where did the capital come to do those deals out of curiosity? Uh, the beauty about those transactions, John, is remember, these are these are existing public housing transactions sure. that, that, that we are converting to project-based public housing units, right? Okay. So it's and, not, and all of the deals, none of them have, they don't have any debt on them. Right, so we're basically recapitalizing those assets with the in-place rents and basically securitizing those rents. So you're like a fee developer in the projects, or how we're fee? We're, we're no, we're owner. We are joint venture owners with okay. the housing authority. Right. We're taking on some significant risk in terms of securing the loan. Okay, and, um, they own the buildings. Okay, um, fifty-fifty. Uh, we own it fifty percent. We are ground and nine-year ground lease. So you did a land sale, lease back sales yeah, structure. And, and okay. Yeah, and, and, but we take on 100% of the risk associated with that and the construction. So do you sign personally on the construction facility? The, 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 on the construction, yes. But, you know, we, we, it's, a, then it's, a, it's a pace. It's a very long, you know, fast pace to get to permanent financing so we sure. can get to the non-recourse nature. Yes, of course. As soon as possible. As soon as possible, yes. Yeah. yeah. But well, yeah, HUD will do a non-recourse. HUD will do a non-recourse. Yes, HUD will do a for, for, for on the construction side as well. Yes, and 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 another deal that we hope to announce soon, we plan to structure that way. Yeah, yeah. And of course, HUD has it. As if you've been through the HUD process, you know it's. Oh yes, it can be. Oh yes, yeah. So that's those wow. are the four. Those are the four companies that. That's I, great. That's I guess exciting. sort of you know oversee. So these did this come ever kind of. Ever, Evolutionary to you, or was it all kind of a grand design in your it's mind? It's all like, evolutionary. I can't tell you that it was a grand design. Right. Nothing about, <laughs> about I'm not, I, again, like I tell you, I'm not the idea guy. Yeah. If you come to me with an idea yeah. and I think it makes sense, I will pull the trigger immediately. Got it. Right. And that's essentially what we've done. Like, you know, the reason why we have the investment company is because Sharif Mitchell basically saw something that I did not see. So he came to the office and pitched me on the idea. And I was like, great, I love the idea. Let's let's go. And that's how the investment company started. That's great. Yeah. So how did you develop your relationships with Roadside? That's the only company we have. <laughs> so I know Richard, I know Richard quite well. So shout Richard out to Lake. Lake, Richard Lake. So first things first, Amon Spikel was one of the instructors, one of our guest instructors at Johns Hopkins, when I was at Johns Hopkins. Okay. And which is I, Richard Lake's partner. Which is Richard Lake's partner. Right. And I just love this demeanor. Like, I don't know if you know, like, I know he's, got, he's, he's got this great aura about right. him. And I was like, that's the guy I want to be like. Right. Very like, and he's also very, very technical. Like, Amon is a very mathematical genius, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that was my first intro to, to, to roadside. Then my second intro to roadside is again because you know I read a lot and I'm sort of in tune. They had secured the PUD for the planned unit development for the city market deal. And as part of the PUD, they had a mandate to build a 
a hundred percent affordable housing tower. Mm-hmm. And I knew that they had zero experience in anything affordable housing. So I flew out to Vegas to ICSC to go stalk Richard. You did. I did. I did. I told you I'm a stalker. That's what I do. You could have gone to his I, office here. Yeah, but I, 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 I just, I, I needed for him to know that I was serious. It's funny. I needed for him to know that I was very serious. So I stalked him. I basically crashed the party and I was like, Hey, I, I hear you guys have this affordable deal. I'm your guy. I need to do it. I need to do it. He'll look at me. He's like, what the hell is wrong? So I basically, I stalked him. I stalked him on and. One day, I'll never forget the day, I was closing another deal for Adrian. I'm at the closing table, literally just making sure that the deal actually happens. And my phone rings, and it was Amon Spikeau. And I was like, wow, why is Amon calling me? So I'm literally at the closing table, so I pick up the phone, and he goes, are you ready? And I was like, emphatic, emphatically, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And that was it. And, 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 and that's because I, I made a strong pitch. Like I put together a strong proposal. Good. In fact, I've done the deal already for them before they even, like I did, I put the performer, I put the package, I went to the capital markets and got a couple of lenders to sure. preliminary say yes. Yeah. And I sent everything to them without even having right. a contract in hand. And, and years later, he told me he really appreciated well, Richard, that. Richard took me through there yeah. with my ULI group. Okay. And I was very impressed with the quality of that of that project. Yeah, for an affordable project. Yeah, it's very yeah. well done. Yeah, no, I love. I you know it's funny. I'm having goosebumps right now just talking about roadside. I learned so much. I learned so so. Aman and Richard were the ones who taught me. If you advance the deal far enough, you've already created significant value for yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I I I was like. I love that. And well, that's why using house money. They're as good of urban developers yeah. as any in Washington. Yeah, in my opinion. I mean, what they did at City Market at all, yeah. and that was an amazing project. Their project at Tenley Town yep. is an amazing project. Yep. And what they're doing right now at yeah. Redmond City yeah. Rich yeah. City Rich is unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. It's a phenomenal yeah. project. No, the fact that I have the fact that I've got their direct numbers is actually amazing. Like, like they still pick up my phone today. I mean, we're doing another deal right now. Like, we Richard called me and was like, "Boo, let's let's run it back." I I said yes, like it was a marriage proposal. I was like, "Let's go." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Let's go." You don't have to ask me twice. Like, I what? I still get to be in partnership with you and and still talk to you and get all this knowledge from you and 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 Todd and and Ahmad. Sure. No right. question about it. Yeah, no. Nah, right. Phenomenal team. The entire team over there. Lauren, Mike Fallon, phenomenal team. Yeah. Phenomenal team of people, and they've been nothing but exceptionally nice to me. And I've known Patty Ernest a lot. Yeah, Patty too. Yeah, yeah. no, nah, it's phenomenal. I would, like, that's one partnership that I do not take for granted at all. That's great. I don't. I love them to pieces, and I'm glad that I have an opportunity to learn from them. That's awesome. Yeah. So, let me move now to your uh, public relationships. So yes. you are in the board of the D.C. Housing Finance Agency. Talk about that responsibility and what you do for them. Well, I mean, first off, it's an honor to be selected by the mayor, right, to help lead an agency that focuses and specializes in affordable housing financing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my job really is sort of help give like a pulse of like the industry because I'm also a practitioner, right? It's like how often do you sometimes come across like 
maybe politicians or banks who maybe try to like introduce various initiatives that may not necessarily be, you know, practical in nature. So my job is to help create innovative, innovative programs to help move affordable housing deals as well as figure out a ways for them to do it way more efficiently. So, you know, we've introduced technology now. Before you would have to like apply with like rims and rims of hard copy paper. We've done away with that. So everything right now is done electronically. There's way more transparency in how the agency reviews its deals and approves its deals. And a lot more transparency in how we're using our limited resources to help move transactions forward. So a lot of good. I mean, it's for me, frankly, it's a job that I, I love. Like it's, it's a break away from the mundane, right? That's the first thing for me. It's like, it's like, Oh wow. Like you are, you're, I get to sort of lead. I get to sort of provide guidance to yet another CEO, but do it in a way that it's more like you would engage with a bank, a traditional bank, mm-hmm. right? So we go and we learn the best practices mm-hmm. from the banks that we, that we currently engage in and try to take a lot of those principles and bring it to an agency that, that isn't sort of like left in the dark ages and stuff like that. And we've done that. We've done that over the years. Todd was an exceptional CEO. You know, unfortunately we lost him and, and Chris has done a very good job in picking up that mantle and moving that agency forward. So my job is just, you know, it's just, you know, how do they put it? It's just like, I'm just, I'm just a sounding board. <laughs> more than anything else and right. making sure that that agency is is regarded as, you know, any other financial institution that you would encounter. How do you separate your responsibilities on that board with your investment and development activities? Yeah, I mean, like, this is something that we've, we, we, um, so, you know, the thing about, the, the first thing that folks need to realize about HFA is because of the technical aspects of the transactions that the agency encounters, mm-hmm. you really need technical people on the board. Right. Right. Because they're the ones who sort of understand the deals and they're able to sort of unpack them. Unpack them. And, yeah. and making sure that again, as stewards, because we are stewards of right. public resources, mm-hmm. that those resources are being used efficiently. Sure. So that's first things first. The second thing is, you know, the, the bylaws and the rules of engagement are pretty clear as day, right? In that, no board member is supposed to sit in on any conversations that there is an apparent conflict of interest, right. whether it's your own deal or a deal that even I am a consultant on. Mm-hmm. And we're not allowed, and we're supposed to recuse ourselves 100% from those sure. transactions. And mm-hmm. we've done it. We, we, we get the, the, the hopla that's, that's sort of, you know, that is sort of out there. But the question that I ask everybody is, who do you want to be on the board? Someone that doesn't understand real estate finance. If that's what if that's what the mayor wants, if that's what the council wants, then so be it. But it's it's not that easy. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you know somebody will bring something to the table and they don't really understand what they're doing. And oftentimes you can end up being a counselor to to, to developers that are relatively new to applying for this yeah. kind of financing. Yeah. Because it's not the easiest thing to figure out, honestly. Yeah. It's complicated. So you asked a question earlier, right? You asked mm-hmm. a question earlier about <coughs> fundraising and how do I do fundraising. So one of the initiatives that – talk about an innovative initiative that we're able to put together is we realized that there are lots of mom-and-pop 
emerging developers in the District of Columbia who don't have access to equity. They don't. So you know what we did? We created a program for them through HFA. And you know what has happened since then? We've expanded the pool of emerging developers that did not exist before. That's great. Right? So someone who doesn't understand the the, the, the challenges associated with right. debt is everywhere. Like, African-Americans rack up a whole bunch of debt in credit card and everything oh, else, yeah, right? right? But the one thing that we do not have is access to equity. And you know what? Now we've done it in the District of Columbia that no other city has. That's interesting. Right? So that's so when we talk about innovative program, that's something that, again, because of my own direct experience mm-hmm. in the District of Columbia, we're able to start up a program like that. Well, now you're in New York, you do the same you thing. You do the same thing there. Yeah, same thing. So... There's a lot of good that comes with having knowledgeable practitioners on board. The same way if you were going to be on a bank board, yeah. right? Like you would want, you know, you would, you would, you would want knowledgeable people on the board because at the end of the day, it's like, oh, okay. They can, they can, they can, because sometimes one thing I've come to realize is as human beings, we can't help but be subjective, right? But now as board members, you can help bring and introduce objectivity. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, and I ask this question to other housing developers, and I've asked this point blank. In fact, Tom Bizzuto on a webinar recently, how do we do private only affordable housing? He said, John, it's impossible. impossible. You can't do it because, you know, the, the economics of the marketplace are such that, you know, you can't. And there's really no incentive. I said, well, what about employers? What about Amazon or something like that coming in and doing that? And even then, he said, it's really hard. It's really, really hard to do it. And you need someone who has an appetite for, for who's a glutton for punishment? <laughs> I guess that's the definition of your company. That's, that's, what, we <laughs> that's what we do, right? That's just just it. Yeah. Right. So, you know, look, I'm again like I said, I serve at the I serve at the pleasure of the mayor. I love I love that job and the fact that and by the way, this is my second time doing it, right? Like remember I was appointed by well, Right. Yeah. And now and now I got I got appointed by, by Mayor Bowser. So, you know, I'll serve for us for as long as she wants me to. And, sure. and again, like I said, I love I love serving. That's great. Yeah. Recent articles have suggested that the urban growth with intense density may slacken for several reasons, including high real estate values, mm-hmm. aging demographics leading millennials to seek less expensive and more spacious housing, mm-hmm. reduced use of transit, etc. Mm-hmm. Your reaction to these trends? Yes, it's all true. This is why we got into affordable housing in 2006, right? Because... If you think about it, like again, when we talk about data, right? I, I only I only go off of data. Mm-hmm. In New York right now, if you put up an affordable housing building in New York, you're gonna get anywhere from fifty to hundred applicants per door. In DC, that number is close to ten to twenty per door. Right? We put up a building, we've got lines around the door like it's a concept, right? So Again, all I can tell you is because of my own personal story that I witnessed, however many years ago, mm-hmm. it's now way more, it's intensified, 
So the, the 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 so yes, so it's it's become more and more. And if we don't do something about it, if we don't do something about it, you're gonna have, you know, what do they call them? Uh, I forget the terminology they use for them. Homeless by homeless by circumstance. It's not big. It's just right. yeah. Well, it's already the case in San Francisco now. Precisely. Right? It's it's the case now. And it's not just doing something about it from a building standpoint, but it's also doing something about it from a policy standpoint, yeah. especially when it comes to zoning. Well, it's it's more than just that. It's not a person, it's not a human tragedy, but it could also be a social problem. Yep. Big and one. That's when big one. Real that's a real concern. Yep. When crime's gone yep. up in yeah. the yeah. big one. This, it's, there's no mistaken as to why this is all happening, right? It all starts with housing. Yeah. So how is your portfolio faring? You're up to 95%. 95, 90, yeah. As yeah. I can see, stay stable. Through, I mean, what you just said about demand tells me that as long as you stay in the affordable sector, you'll never have a problem with supply, with demand. You can't build enough, is what you're saying. We can't. Yeah. We cannot. So that's not an issue. And, of course... The subsidies help to compensate for the, you know, if somebody can't pay their rent one month, you know. The subsidies have really helped, especially in those last two yeah. years, right, yeah. where, where the federal government and local government have really stepped in, in a very big way to yeah. assist folks who are unable to pay their rent. Yes, that has helped significantly, okay. especially for affordable housing owners and operators. I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. So as long as those checks show up and they, they make them. So then the question is, I mean, the government had these all these subsidies going, so now there's pushback on, okay, when are these going to stop? Yes. Know? So what <laughs> happens after that is the question. Well, know, I so. think there's always going to be unintended consequences of novel laws and novel policies that get introduced, right? And some of the unintended consequences that we've experienced is there is no incentive for people to go back to the workforce, right, because they're being taken care of. So... I think that we're seeing a bunch of those policies sunsetting, and we hope that, that they do sunset soon. I think some of them have already like expired, and people start going back to the workforce and you know get off unemployment and you know start paying their rent with their own dollars. So you know those are the, I mean there's always going to be unintended consequences, and the question is how do we as as owners operators adapt? Right. So. Talk about your company culture and what you want so, to inspire in your colleagues. When hiring, what, what characteristics do you seek? So everybody will tell you that the two things that people will tell you about me that work here, and hopefully they do say that if they don't, they're in trouble, is that Boer is an extremely hard worker, right? I wake up every day, 3, 4 a.m., every morning and they all get all the emails from me. When do you go to bed at night then? Because <laughs> <laughs> eight hours sleep is important. <laughs> at some point it will be. I'm too much of an excitable guy frankly to sleep long hours. I'm way too much. It's not because of anxiety. It's not because... The question is can you stay focused? Oh yes. Without sleep. Because sleep's important. Oh yes. This has been consistent. Again, Talk about consistency. Okay. This has been a consistent theme of mine. Five, six hours sleep. Yeah. It's a consistent theme of mine for years. So it's not like... Right. No, it's literally for years. And everybody in everybody's office will tell you. They'll tell you that I'm not afraid to get my hands dirty. I'm not afraid to... You know, nothing is... Nothing is, you know, beyond 
um, reproach me. I'll, I'll do whatever. And by the way, there isn't any job that anybody has done that I haven't done, mm-hmm. right? So they'll tell you that I'm a very hard worker. They'll tell you that I am addicted to winning, right? And they'll also tell you that he loves to have fun doing what he does. So given those traits of mine, those are the same qualities or characteristics that we look for when we hire people. I need to know that they have a deep desire to succeed. They don't all necessarily have to be entrepreneurial, but I think they see it in me and it comes out and they've got a sixth sense of humor. So it all works out. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what person or people have stood out to you as <laughs> You mentioned several already. So you mentioned Richard Lake. Yes. Armin Spiegel. Yes. Mike Bush. So those are three that I'll mention. But who else would you say? Well, I mean, I would say that, you know, like, I'm not sure if you've heard this term lately, like, the whole notion of like black excellence is something that's really, really like inspired and motivated me, I would say, you know, from day one, right? So like, you know, reading reading Jay-Z's story, like reading like Pop Daddy's story, I think for me it was just like, wow, how do you go from a kid, you know, in 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 the hood to just being like, you know, a mega multi-billion dollar entrepreneur, like forget the superstar aspect of it, but the fact that they were able to make that transition, you know, business-wise, I think are folks that have stood out to me, but more locally speaking, you know, you know, the folks that I'm going to mention are folks that you really need to consider interviewing, right? So Hinoch Sapphire, right? You look at someone like Hinoch, Hinoch is someone that used to park cars. It was a valet, it was a valet guy on U Street, Right, and he's grown his company into a mega. What's the name of his firm? U Street Parking. Okay. Right, so he manages the parking at Dallas. He manages the parking at Reagan Airport. Really? Right. Like, yes, he went from parking cars on U Street. Right. Like, when he worked for Colonial or one of the other firms. One of the firms, yeah. yeah. And he's basically EMI. And he's and he's and he's basically created a conglomerate just out of parking cars. Right. That's interesting. Right. Phenomenal, phenomenal human being, and he also manages the parking at Addis Ababa's airport in Ethiopia. Which I've seen myself in Ethiopia. In Ethiopia. Is that right? where he's from? That's where he's from, right? So, so you look at that, and, and I'm just, I'm just, I'm just in awe. Like every time I'm around him, I'm just like, ah, oh, please give me all this wealth of knowledge. Boom, and Kitty's another one that I just absolutely. Oh, I met. That's like my brother from another mother. Like I'm just, you know, I knew Bo. I tell everybody I knew Bo when he had like six agents, and now he's got over a thousand. Agents, right? And again, taking that and built a multi-conglomerate business. So, you know, those are just like a few examples of like individuals that, you know, that stand out to me now. Jaya Lynch, obviously, is another one. I mean, Jaya, Lord, like, again, how do you go from being a gymnast to being like one of the major, you know, aggregators of, of assets, right? He's a very smart guy. Extremely. Went to Stanford University. Hey, listen. He's brilliant. If I know that I'm going to be Sitting down with Jaya, I need my eight hours of sleep, right? Like, I, <laughs> six hours is not going to cut, right? Six hours is not going to cut. And another guy, too, he's also another person, too, that, you know, I just admire. I mean, these are just, you know, a few folks. Then, obviously, you know, Ron Morris in New York has just been, oh, Have you sat with Cedric yes. before? Cedric I've, I've, I know, I've said, wait, where did I meet Cedric? I met Cedric because of another business partner over here. So that's how... He and I got to you and here about the same yeah, size. Yeah, yeah, you both yeah. very tall. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. I actually met him at a wedding. 
in Lake Cuomo. <laughs> well, you should understand what yeah. he's doing. Yeah. Right? Have a yeah. 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 That's yeah. quite a special yeah. project. No, amazing, amazing dude. Amazing dude. I mean, so these are like a few folks that like, I'm very blessed to have direct contact with. I'm very blessed to have them as sounding board. And um, I'm also very blessed to have them as examples of what black excellence is for me. That's great. So, Boo, I wanted to shift gears here and uh, ask you, you may have listened to my past podcast episodes with John Green and Joe Carroll, where we discussed the recent racial incidents and the social aftermath of those. Curious if you have a perspective on this as a, as a leader in the black community. Yeah. You know, I would say that a lot of good things have, have come out of sort of the racial awakening, particularly in the, in the industry in which we're in over the course of the last two years. And I'm glad to see that the industry is, is just taking notice and being aware of the fact that, you know, that there's been significant lack of representation, whether it's in the, whether it's in the board selection process, whether it's in, you know, upper management selection process, whether it's, or, or, or other aspects of, of the entire ecosystem that, that you and I get to be a part of on a daily basis. I, I particularly am very, in, I'm very curious and happy too to see that, you know, companies are, are spending more time with the, with the, with the, is it the E, the E part of the ESG that yes. everyone is, is talking about? Well, that's environmental. So, yeah. Yes. Well, environmental. Yeah. Environmental. And, and because I think at the end of the day, the, 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 you know, the reason why I, I bring that up is because as you and I know, there was a lot of purchasing power associated with any real estate transaction, right? So if you are going to host a very big, large conference right now today, are you looking beyond your, your immediate environment to, to see who's going to provide the catering job or, or the, 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 the video or, or other technological capabilities that you need in order for that conference to, to, to be a successful one, right? Or, as an owner operator, are you also looking beyond your immediate environment to see who can be the landscaper, to see who can be the, who can provide the janitorial services, who can provide the trash services and so on and so forth. So I think that those are the things that, you know, we are, we are watchful and at the same time excited about. But the bottom line is I'm really hoping that this is more than just a moment for the movement, right? Because as you know, Folks tend to get all hype and get all excited once something, you know, comes up and it's new and trendy. But I'm really hoping that racial awakening is not a trendy topic, but more of a, of a like I said, more of a, of a movement going forward such that people are more and more aware of the responsibilities that they have as, as business leaders to, to, to ensure inclusivity in, in the space. And all the things that I just mentioned are the things that me and my firm does on a daily basis. I can actually quantify to you and tell you that to the, that we have spent to the tune of over $50 million in the course of the last two years in black, black and brown firms, uh, you know, across the board in everything that we do, whether it's a title company, whether it's an interior firm, whether it's an architecture firm, whether it's landscaping, whether it's janitor. So these are the things that I currently do as a, as a, as the leader in the space and hope that my peers in the industry will continue to do the same thing. Well, you, you've been doing business in Washington for 
15 plus years now, maybe 20. Have you noticed a, a significant difference in the last two years about your the acceptability of you coming into environments that you may not have been able to participate in in the past or more acceptance perhaps amongst the business leadership in the community? Uh, so the first thing I'll say to that is, you know, D.C. is a very unique place, right? Because D.C. has always had a mandate for inclusivity for a very yes. long time, particularly that's as true. it comes to, you know, public-private partnership. And that's mm-hmm. how firms like mine were able to get our foot in the door. The question is really, and, and that's been great and it's been successful, and you cannot do a, a deal in this, this D.C. without ensuring you know, proper representation and significant ownership. What has not changed is in the private deals that take place, right? Because there is zero accountability as far as private transaction is taking place. Now, I'm not saying that I need you as a developer to bring me on as a business partner for the sake of bringing me on. However, if you're thinking about hiring architects, if you're thinking about hiring interior designers, if you're thinking about hiring a permit expediter, if you're thinking about hiring other vendors that make up the entire ecosystem, that's what you need to be doing on your private deals as a business leader in the community. And I, I've not seen that change, and it's our hope that that continues to change going forward. So there are more and more minority representation in the, in the third party, you know, consulting Correct. and, you know, support yep. industry to support to the real estate industry is what you're suggesting. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So looking looking at education in urban areas, in your opinion, how should our educational system help to build self-confidence among minority students to pursue opportunities? Listen, you're talking to someone who, you know, at, at a very early age found, you know, struggled, struggled to to pay attention in a classroom. Right. And and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that um students like myself found it very difficult to make the connection in terms of, you know, how a geographic class is going to help me in my career or how, you know, calculus was going to help me in my career. Look, those are all good things to learn. It's, you know, it's great to learn about, you know, chemistry, but I can't tell you that I am mixing any, <laughs> any, any uh, you know, materials together today. Right. But I would tell you that for me, I've always thrived in an environment where things are way more practical. And, and, and I say that to say that, look, I have the opportunity every now and then to go and talk to kids, whether it's in middle school, whether it's in high school. And every single time I talk about financial literacy or I just tell them what I do from a very simplistic standpoint of how many of you live in apartment buildings today? And majority of the students in the class raise their hand up. And I say, do do either one of you in this class know how much you pay in rent? And 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 they tell me they say, oh, we pay a thousand dollars a month in rent or twelve hundred in rent. And I say, mm-hmm. okay, can someone multiply that rent by a thousand units times twelve months in a year? And the moment they come to that realization from a mathematical exercise, they themselves tell me and say, whoa. You generate more income than a basketball player or whoa, you generate more income <laughs> than a rapper. And they're like, wait, how do we do that again? Wait, and they, and they stop me dead in my tracks and they're doing the math all over again because uh-huh. now they've seen an alternative mathematically as to how they can go about making money without necessarily going down the path that most of us think is the way out because we are not 
we are not sort of brought that close to to how alternative ways of how money is being made. So I'm a big proponent of of of, of looking at alternative ways to educate our kids, particularly the young black kids, in 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 sort of making it more practical, making it more realistic, such that they can break that cycle of poverty that most of us, you know, are are in today. So that's my suggestion and how we'll go about educating our kids. So have you ever taken a group of young children, I mean maybe middle school or high school kids, into a site and walked them around and shown them how these things are done at all physically? I I do. I have I have and I do and and you should you should see their eyes. Because you, because you you gotta understand that in in our in our culture the word developer does not exist, right? Even till today, whenever I tell people I'm in real estate, the first thing that comes to mind is, oh, you're a realtor. And I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> I'm not I'm not a realtor, I'm a developer. And they go, oh, you must be the contractor. I'm like, no, 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 no I'm not the contractor. The, the contractor works for me. The architect works for me. Mm-hmm. And And you could see their facial expression change the moment they work on site. You can see them when, you know, they're like, wait, what? You actually, like human beings actually own buildings? I'm like, yes, human beings own buildings. Like, let me show you how it's done. And, and, and again, it just goes to all of what I said earlier, right? It's all about exposure. The moment you're able to expose kids to something, you know, other than what their immediate environment is, they themselves start to see themselves in you and and now want to aspire to to be just exactly. as great. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you're almost like a magician when you show them things that, <laughs> that they've never seen before. <laughs> I'm in the business of making something out of nothing. Yes, that's what I do. That's right. You're a magician. I like that. I'll put that in my uh, I'll put that in my business card going forward. We were the magician. Yeah, that's right. When you yeah. take them to a site, you say, "I want to show you a magic trick." Here's the magic trick, and this is how it's done. You know, I mean, even Absolutely. middle school kids would get that. You know, absolutely, they, they'd, yeah. they'd get a huge kick out of it. And if you yeah. explain it, the key is simplify, make it as simple as possible. And I think because of your, you're almost maniacal analytical skills, you can simplify things for people in a, in a way that other people may not be able to. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think you can. So thank you. Uh, which I think would be great. It's a great educational tool. And, that, and that's kind of what my, my earlier guests have, have done with their, with their careers to some extent with younger people that they work with as a mentor. And so, yeah. you know, you know, I think it's really important to get down early on. And I do the urban, urban plan program for ULI Washington, which is so, somewhat like that, but it's more in planning. But you act as if you're a developer presenting to a city. And it's a great program. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's. I am. I'm very familiar with it. Yeah. And in fact, uh, I so, I've been asked to present on prior occasion. So well, it's every, yeah, any it's, and every opportunity I get, any and every opportunity that I'm, I'm asked to to educate folks, I I seize those opportunities like it were a deal. I really That's go great. after it. I, I want to do it because the more the more folks I can expose to this industry, the, I feel like it'll be the better off the industry will be. That's great. 
So, Bua, what what are your life priorities among family, work, and giving back? Well, family is always going to be a priority, right? And 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 it's it's <laughs> it's interesting because you know, like I said earlier, I come from a family of entrepreneurs, right? Like my dad, my my uncles, right. my mom. So right. so business has always been part of the family, just as much as family has always been part of the business, and. I get to, you know, see it unfold right before my eyes with my own two daughters, right? Who, you know, who love to hear me in my car on conference calls and you can see their wheels turning like, oh, why did you make that decision or, or what deal are you negotiating or, and, and stuff like that. And, and my, and my, that's, and that's my older daughter, by the way, and my younger daughter who is just fascinated by interior design features that we incorporate into our buildings. And and now she wants to be this, you know, grand interior designer because she feels like she can make places look beautiful. So it's a, it's a, it's a family business and I would not have it any other way. As far as I'm concerned, I'm not saying that, or maybe I am saying that I would love for them to be, to be part of the business, but at least at the, at the very least, you know, for them to be very well educated about what, you know, what their daddy does, because as you can imagine, you know, significant amount of wealth gets created and they need to figure out how to best manage that, um, going forward, you know, and that's, you know, I would say, you know, it's a, it's a priority of mine. And, and as far as giving back is concerned, you know, we've been very fortunate that we've had a family foundation going on almost six years now. They, they know about it. They're involved in it. They're always trying to get the foundation to make donations to their respective schools. And I'm like, that's great, but that's not what it's all about. It's not just about donating money to your respective schools, but it's about, you know, the larger environment that, that we operate in, whether it's, you know, back to school programs that we donate to every year, entrepreneurial programs like Build DC that we contribute every single year and, and other organizations such as those in, in ensuring that again, that that as like I said before, it's all about exposure um, to to black and brown kids. So it's a very robust family. It's a very active family. We all work together. We all celebrate together, and they're very very involved. They come to all the groundbreakings. They you know yeah they're 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 heavy 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 participants and are bought in. That's great, Bua. That's encouraging. So you mentioned education. You like to do that. So that's obviously a big part of giving back too, I assume, is to teach young people in the, in the community. I do. I spend countless hours in various classrooms every year. That's great. That's great. So what were your biggest wins, losses and surprising events in your career? Listen, I'll say, I'll say, you know, there, there are obviously several, you know, the biggest, I'll say the number one biggest win is obviously having a wife who was not a dream killer because I've always been shy and I still am very shy of, <laughs> of disclosing my, because I, I, I've always had grand ideas and, and I'm always afraid that every time I tell someone that they'll probably just look at me and, and roll their eyes. And maybe it's just my insecurity. But I've always had like grand ideas. So I've, I've always kept all of my ideas to myself. And, and I was recounting the story recently about, you know, when I, when I went on the date before, you know, with my, my then girlfriend, now my wife and, and telling her about my, my grandiose plans. You know, she, she did not bat an eyelid, right? She was like, Oh, you know what? I, I think you can do it. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. Like she didn't, she didn't shut it down because as you can imagine, coming from not 
entrepreneurism is not your typical career path for most Nigerians. It's just not, right? Like you're either going to be a doctor, you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be an engineer. And someone who's saying that they're going to be a, an entrepreneur might as well just be, you know, might as well just be an aloof individual, you know, you know, hanging out at California beach all day, not doing anything because nobody can seem to put you in one place. But the fact that that was well received initially was great. Number two win is, is a gentleman by the name of Corey Powell, who is sort of like our chief operating officer. And he's just wildly brilliant individual who, you know, I was able to convince seven, eight years ago to come join the company when it was still relatively novel and finding its way. And, you know, as you can imagine, he was working at a very big firm, making stupid amounts of money from a salary standpoint and sort of on, on his path to becoming, you know, you know, maybe VP or even a CEO of the organization in, in which he was, he was at and, um, convincing him, like I, like I always put it as convincing Michael Jordan to come play for the D leagues. And now that, and now that he's joined the team, We've had nothing back, nothing but back to back to back championships since he's been on board. And I would say, you know, having him at the company has been wildly instrumental and, and one of the big key pieces why, you know, we've been wildly successful as, as an organization, you know, just because of the way he's like, you think I'm maniacal. This guy is just diabolical when it comes to, <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to, when it comes to uh, operation. You know, I would say biggest loss is a transaction I worked on called Mayfair Mansions. You know, unfortunately, I can't go into too much detail as far as that's concerned. But, you know, that's one transaction that's still for me till today. The good thing is I've learned a lot. I would say that deal was a formidable deal for me in, in my growth in the industry and helped me to realize a whole host of things that, 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 you know, have to do with real estate and also not having to do with real estate that has really helped shape me into who I am today. And lastly, I would what say... Was the, what was the biggest know, the lesson? Of, what was the biggest lesson you learned from that? Just out of curiosity. I, I would say the biggest lesson there is just sort of... I would say I would say the biggest lesson there is just... is just um, making sure that, you know, your 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 expectations as far as transactions are concerned are, 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 are really codified in, in, in all of the documents. Right. And I think that, you know, you know, I always, every time I talk to young, 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 you know, individuals coming up in the game, I always tell them it's, it's imperative that you know your business. Right. And I always say that it's imperative that you know the business in which you're in, but also making sure too that, that, Whatever expectations you have as far as the transaction is concerned, whether it's the business plan of the transaction, make sure that it's, it's truly etched in stone and not, and not, and not be, and not be, and not just, not just, not just hope that it happens, right? Like make sure it's etched in stone and that all parties are, are, are aligned as far as that's concerned. So that's, that's the biggest lesson there. I would say the biggest surprising event for me, frankly, was crossing the billion dollar mark as an organization. I, I still don't know what that means because to, to, to have had finance over a billion dollars, that's a lot of resources that we are overseeing on behalf of a lot of folks. So to be, I mean, look, if, if anyone is a steward of a million dollars is something that you certainly want to take very, very seriously. However, the fact that we're stewards of over a billion dollars now, $1.5 billion worth of assets is, um, 
is really, really a staggering feat for any firm to have accomplished. And the fact that we've done that on, on, on a bootstrap budget and continue to do so, you know, I dare say I think we'll be at over two billion by, by maybe this time next year. So, so I think that, yeah, I mean, it just goes to show that dreams are possible and that we should, you know, continue to stay the course and do what we love. So, Bo, what, what advice would you give your 25 year old self today? <laughs> so this is, this is a good one. And it's funny because I've had to do a lot of, as you, as you can imagine, right? I've had to do a, a lot of reflection lately. Uh, you know, because I always get access advice, like, would you do anything differently? And, and you know, my, my answer is no, I wouldn't do anything differently. I think the path that I've taken has been pretty good. However, the one thing that I would advise young people to do is, which is what I would tell my 25 year old self to do is don't, don't pay off the school debt. If, if, you know, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm very big on not having any personal debt. So when I graduated from college, I, all I did was work countless hours, right? I used all my free time between six o'clock and 10 o'clock to make extra income so that I could quickly pay off my school debt. And knowing what I know now and at the time, and at that time when I lived in DC, I could have used that money and, and applied it as, as multiple down payments to buy a lot of properties in DC. And, and as history has, has shown all of us, one of those properties would have paid off my school debt and more at later years. Right. Sure. So, 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 so the, 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 the moral of the story is really, you know, in our culture, we're, we're thought to save money and we're thought to, you know, pay off debt, but we're never thought to not be afraid of investing. And I think that that's, the, the thing that I'm trying to encourage people to think more of is, look, the, the, the only way out of this nine to five rat race cycle that we're all in is to not be afraid of investing. Like take the money that you have and invest it in tangible assets and watch it grow. And over time, you're going to see that those returns can use to pay off the debt without necessarily having to sell the entire asset in of itself. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's the advice that I would give my 20, 25 year old self. Very practical. That's very good. So final question. If you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? (laughs) There is no succession without successors. That's what there's, it's going to say. There's no succession without successors. Is that what you're saying? That's right. That's okay. it. And yeah. And your rationale behind that? It's just forcing people to think about legacy. Mm-hmm. It's forcing people to think about like, you know, what is it that I'm leaving behind? And again, this is really speaking to my people, right? Because, you know, the main reason why I started a company was because I wanted a company that was going to outlive me, right? Most African-American-owned companies die with their founders. Most of them, 90% of them die with their founders. And I wanted to be able to create something that um, would outlive me. So I've, I've forced myself to make a lot of sacrifices over the years to be able to create a company that has a legacy that should be able to proceed. 
um, in the in the in the event of my untimely passion. So basically, it, it forces you as an individual to make sacrifices today, and it forces you as an individual to develop the next generation of leaders. And if we as a generation think that way, we're not going to be selfish. We're not. We're going to be very very considerate human beings, and we're thinking about the generation behind us at all levels. So you could be whatever career path that you're taking, if you're thinking about a generation coming after you, you're, you're going to think very differently as a human being. It's my, is my hope because since I adopted that attitude, I've had to think way long-term than, than usual and not think short-term at all. So that's, that would be what I would put on the billboard to just as a reminder for people to constantly think long-term and not think short-term at all. Well, Bua, on that note, that's that's an outstanding way to end the conversation. I really appreciate it. Uh, the whole concept of paying it forward is what I do as well. And it's something that's really important, I think, in life. And having a legacy is very special. And uh, I'm glad to hear that that's your philosophy. And thank you very much for your time and, uh, <laughs> and candor, candor in this conversation. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope thank the you. listeners thank enjoy. Thank you for it. inducting me into the. Thank you for inducting me into the icons of real estate. I'm so thrilled. <laughs> You're welcome, Bua. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks a lot. Cheers. We just listened to Bua Baniti, who is a very interesting uh, fellow from Nigeria who started his own company, naming it after Edwin, the the writer of. Uh, the Count of Monte Cristo, which is an interesting book, it, it inspired him, Dante's, Edwin Dante's. And as I normally do, I'm bringing on my cohort, Colin Madden, here to talk a little bit about the podcast. Welcome, Colin. Thanks, John. Uh, good to be here, as always. I thought this was another fun podcast. I thought he was a very likable guy, and uh, jolly is a word that came to mind with his infectious laugh and the uh, just kind of general optimistic outlook on a lot of situations and just interesting to follow along his life, his career and his kind of mindsets on a lot of circumstantial situations that he finds himself in. It's, it's always, it seemed to be like an always glass half full type of life for him. And he, even though he had like stints of being homeless due to certain circumstances, he, it seems like he looks back on that positively almost, but it also yes. kind of feeds his, his outlook on life and, I would, I would assume that, you know, was a major factor of his, his ability to become hyper-focused in the affordable housing <clears throat> space. So I thought, you know, it's, it's cool to see like the whole path of his life and how kind of certain components come into play early and later on in his, in his career. And uh, yeah, just fun to follow along on this one. Wanted to dig into a few things. So the first is we've gone back and forth a lot on like strategies for a career. And I think that the highest level is becoming specialized in a certain aspect or becoming more generalized where you can kind of go with the flow a little bit more often in a constantly changing industry. It sounds like he was more of a specialization career and he became yes. a, a, a very much so an expert in affordable housing. And he's, he's probably one of the best in the city. So because he's one of the best, he's, he's able to get into deals with some of the larger players as you know, a sidecar essentially. Just wanted to get your take on that. How you how you see his specialization versus generalization strategy, and then kind of expound on that to to others trying to make their way through this industry. 
Yeah, I met him teaching a course the, at the real estate apprenticeship program that Mike Bush set up. We, we could talk about that as well a little more. Mm-hmm. But you know, we then had coffee after he came up to me after class and said, let's, let's sit down sometime. He was doing consulting work for Adrian Washington National Development Group, which was Adrian was one of the pioneer black developers in the city mm-hmm. uh, that I knew of at the time. This was, you know, around 2000 or so. So I sat down with Bula and I just knew that when I met him, and this is before he formed his company, that he was a special guy, that he was going to go someplace and really make it happen. He just had this enthusiasm about him and, and, and that. And he recognized early on that for him to leverage to success, he was going to have to really dig in and understand things. So due diligence became his major thrust. And then particularly in the, in the affordable housing space and learned that he knew the numbers well mm-hmm. and he had to learn the programs. And then he started really understanding what the DC programs were and the federal programs. So integrating all those together. And, and then of course, deep down, he had this passion because of what you had said. He had some homeless problems when he was in New York and San Francisco and he realized, okay, this is my focus. And I realized this is the niche that are where I could be successful. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, went deep there and developed the relationships and brought that capability to the table. And the district government, you know, obviously wanted affordable housing and always has. And the current mayor has a program in that, of course. And he knows how to facilitate it as well as anyone. And that's what leveraged his opportunities uh, and still does today. And I think eventually he's going to grow to the point where he's going to start doing market rate things in markets like Prince George's County, where, you know, the market rent is at the affordability limits that allow it to be, quote unquote, affordable housing. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> that's kind of where he uh, he shined. And I think for people listening, yes, I agree with what you just said about either diving deep in one spectrum and becoming the go-to expert in it. That's one way to be successful in a career path. And the other way is to become a bit more generalized and learn a lot about different things and be capable of quickly assessing things and moving into, into the transactional mode. Digging a little bit deeper into your, your first experience with him through your, your course, what, what was it about him that you thought he was going to make it? And I, I feel like he, he said on the podcast that he was shy and I wouldn't have, uh, had that impression because he did seem very outgoing and extroverted on the podcast. And he seems to be like a Uber networker. So when he said he was shy, that, that came as a surprise. Did that surprise you? And yeah, I a little deeper into that. I questioned him on that, on that Mm -hmm. premise. Now his shyness may come when he was in, in environments where he didn't have much to bring to the table. If you know what I mean, where Mm -hmm. he couldn't see opportunity, but once he understood where he could, deliver, he knew that he had to step it up. And I I got the sense he never really was shy. Certainly on a one-on-one basis, he's not. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe in a large crowd where he felt a little intimidated, perhaps, but you haven't physically met him. He's a large man. He's Mm -hmm. probably six, five, maybe Uh, six, four, six, five, very, and and a commanding presence. And he's got a booming voice as you heard. So, he he has he commands a presence, but just walking into a room, yeah, 
Um, and if he's the only black man in the room, he's going to make a big present, a big, mm-hmm. a big mm-hmm. impression. And so, it, you know, he came up to me after the class. So I, I, I he took the initiative. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I don't know if I agree with him. Maybe in his mind, he thought he was shy, but he certainly isn't. And, right. and certainly doesn't have that demeanor at all. And you, you brought up the ULI REAP course you were involved with and just wanted to give you the opportunity to, to dig into that, your experience with that. And, you know, well, that's teach, a long story. This. Yeah. That's a long story that I, I dug into with Mike Bush of formerly of Giant Food and then that program. And then he now teaches at Georgetown. And I headed a podcast with, with Mike. I don't have the episode number, but it was about a year ago or so. So I encourage people that are interested to look into that program or and look into that that podcast. Several of my guests are in the past have, have been through that program. And so it's one of the leading African American black programs in, in Washington for real estate professionals. And it has it's been around since nineteen ninety seven. So how Bua learned about it, I don't I don't recall what he said, uh, how he found out about it, but he took it and that helped him. Mm-hmm. Quite a bit, and the networking particularly helped him. Right. So he's followed a lot of his fellow classmates, and a lot of them have done very well, been very successful mm-hmm. in their careers. So, what's the for those listeners who may be interested in <clears throat> joining that or taking the course? What's the the framework of it? Well, Mike, when he set it up, wanted people to learn the basics about. He was aiming particularly because he's a re, he was a retailer. He aimed more at the retail sector, property management, understanding finance, understanding asset management, property management, bookkeeping, leasing, understanding that. He came at it from a retail standpoint because that was his background and his initial support was through ICSC. It was before ULI affiliation. So he started with ICSC as his, as his main backer and, uh, and so most of the, his initial graduates were went into the real retail sector of some in some form or fashion, typically mm-hmm. as property managers or leasing agents. Yeah. That's what he led up to. He wasn't aiming as much like Cedric Bobo did in the investment area, learning how to buy a property, fix it up, finance it, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. This was more working for larger real estate organizations. Yeah. In training them the basics of understanding real estate and understanding how to manage and operate property, understand an income statement, a balance sheet, why it's important, what, how value is created in the industry and in, in owning real estate, all that. So that was the fundamentals, you know, basically real estate 101, understanding why income producing real estate is valuable. And again, aiming more towards retail, but eventually it diversified and now it's you know a much deeper curriculum mike is only peripherally involved it's now an organization affiliated with uli that you know educates people in about eight or nine cities around the country i believe mm-hmm. so so they have an ongoing curriculum okay wanted to discuss one aspect of the conversation was you said he was he was highly analytical but is very good at simplifying and it reminded me of the Richard Feynman quote that if you can't explain something in simple terms, you don't understand it. And I, I feel like I use that mental model where if I'm trying to explain something to someone and they're not getting it, I typically think it's my fault because if they're not getting it, then I'm not explaining it simply enough. 
And if I'm not doing that, I, I, I also don't understand it well enough. How, how important is, is something like this, this kind of framework in someone's career? Do you, do you always need to be oversimplifying things or I just wanted to get your take on this entire, this, this type of mental model? It's, it's important. I mean, it, it's the ultimate knowledge. You know, you, you go up the ladder, you know, complexity and all that. And then the final one is simplicity. Mm-hmm. Is understand it well enough so you can explain it to us to a to a uh, an eighth grader or a, even younger, even a ten year old. If you can do that, that means you've you've mastered it basically. Because children tend to be more curious and ask questions: why, why, why? Unless you understand the first principles, the basics of, of what how something evolves, you don't really understand it that well. I don't mm-hmm. think it simple you know in a, in very simple ways so i think that's where feynman was going with his thought process there is that you have to be able to take so for instance einstein's theory of relativity the which is supposedly one of the more compl- complicated theories in history mm-hmm. <laughs> interpretation they use the the train the train metaphor right for that which is yeah. famous yeah so i mean taking complicated things and putting it in that framework. Now, some authors don't do that. And, and many academics don't do that because they think, okay, we're only talking to people that understand what we're talking about. So we'll use jargon and, and, you know, complicated structures just to, to show off our, our intelligence. Well, that isn't to me, that's not intelligent. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's ivory tower isolation. You can't be practical. Yeah. Yeah. You're not practical. It's an impractical approach. Mm-hmm. So to be practical in this world, you have to make it very simple because communication is more important than anything else. If you, if you can't communicate, you can't translate what you're doing. To me, it's like learning a foreign language. <laughs> you, 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 you got to get to the basics first, understand the basis of the language before you can learn it. The very basics. When I learned Latin, no one spoke Latin. I mean, and no one still speaks Latin, but Mm -hmm. you have to understand the roots of the language. Right. And what you realize is 75% of the English language comes from Latin. So, you know, that was the origin of our language and Mm -hmm. most European languages. Anyway, it's a first principles thing, really, more than anything else, I think, to answer your question. Yeah. I thought his, his billboard was one of my favorites, I think. I might be butchering it, but I think he said successors are needed for a succession. And I love that. I thought it's a very long-term approach to your career. And it's, it really has nothing to do with money. I feel like it's more about his legacy, which he, he went into. And I thought that's a great framework to to approach a career. It's like you're you're not chasing money. You're, you're kind of chasing legacy. You're trying to chase more, more change and implement change in, in an industry. And I, I thought that was one of my favorite uh, billboards of all your guests, but wanted to get your take on it. I completely agree. And in fact, six years ago, when I decided to start, you know, focusing 100% of my time on helping young people, that became my mission. And to, you know, I didn't start the podcast till a little over two years ago, but I started working with young people, both t- training and Doing that, I'm just pivoting to myself here for a moment, just an example. 
Mm-hmm. And I decided that I wanted to leave a legacy in the, in, in the, in the industry. And so all I do now is to create opportunities for people of your age group to become successful in our, in our industry. And mm-hmm. that's the way I, I mean, his philosophy is very similar to what I wanted to, I want yeah. to do was leave something behind that people will remember that is dedicated to a certain mission. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his mission is affordable housing and helping, you know, underprivileged people to be able to afford homes and to live effectively and have a nice place to live. My mission is more to help young people empower themselves to grow in our industry. Mm-hmm. So it's a very similar thing. So do I have successors? Yes. Potentially you could be a successor for me mm-hmm. um, for this, for this podcast and also for the community we built. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping to build a little bit of that at myself as well. And I agree with him wholeheartedly and he's expanding appropriately mm-hmm. in what he's doing building a property management platform, now an investment platform. So he's, he's trying to leave a legacy that other people can be inspired by and, 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 and learn from. Mm. Yeah, that's great. TV credit. I think you are fulfilling that mission. I think a lot of the people I talk to, you've helped them tremendously, even behind the scenes when you're not in the same room, people are speaking very highly of you. Have, you've, you've helped them in their career. So it is, it is getting done from, from your standpoint. Thank you. Um, to, I got one more I wanted to hit, and it was his his advice to a twenty five year old. Which I feel like our last podcast with Don Wood, we we talked a bit about gambling, but it was more uh, long term gambling and kind of keeping your chips alive to make the the right bets. His advice to twenty five year olds was was more to to gamble a little heavier than the last conversation we had where he said he, he almost regretted paying off his student loans up front because he could have put that into an equity position into a few buildings. And just one of those buildings would have paid off the loans itself. So I thought this is a, a lot more of a risk on advice to a 25 year old, but I wanted to, to hear your, your feedback on this. Well, stepping back there are, as Don talked about and, and, and Bua exemplifies there various mindsets to be successful in our industry. And, you know, the risk spectrum is wide in, mm-hmm. in our, in our industry. <laughs> you can be, you can work as a commercial banker, take no risk hardly at all, learn how to be very good at lending, have a steady paycheck, get a bonus every year and, and do quite well and be happy and be mm-hmm. safe and comfortable or at the other extreme, I don't know if I would call that the most conservative route, route mm-hmm. but it's one of them, one of the more conservative routes. And at the other extreme is go buy land and get it zoned and work on raw land, buying raw land, let's say at a farm and, and <laughs> zoning it into a single family subdivision or, you know, getting a, a 20 acre parcel and building a shopping center or a, you know, <clears throat> basic, you know, to me, the, uh, <laughs> Raw land is the most risky of all. I'll, I'll refer to a podcast I did with David Flanagan, who's the president of Elm Street. That's their business is land development. So that's the extreme out there risk. And the other is to, to get simple employment at a very stable institution, supposedly, although the banking industry went through a lot of tumult and yeah. a lot of people lost their jobs in 2008. 
Yeah. So there's no real safety in this world. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Hopefully you wake up every morning and you're healthy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but you know, as far as risk in our industry, it's a wide swath and Don chose a very, you know, corporate steady mm-hmm. as she goes route. And that's what REIT should be mm-hmm. to be successful is to be, you know, within a boundary, you know, kind of in a, in a, in a, in a boundary of what risk you can and can't take mm-hmm. and, and measure that risk very, very judiciously. As he said, no more than 10% development. Whereas BUA look at it in ultimate leverage perspective. He wanted to kind of wedge himself into opportunities and he was going to take as much gamble as he could to get it wedged into those opportunities. Mm-hmm. And now he's wedged himself into some very good opportunities and he's going to now generate enough fee revenue probably to be able to invest on his own and raise his own capital and maybe even start a fund or do something like that. Right. But he's going to keep his expertise in the affordable housing sector. Cause I asked him the question, Hey, can you do affordable housing without subsidy? He said, no, it's impossible today. Yeah. Yeah. Unless land values drop so dramatically for whatever reason that the numbers pencil then. Mm-hmm. But then you'd say, well, why would I do that? Is that the highest and best use of the land at that point? Right. So that's the question you have to always ask. So that's the, you know, that's my answer to that. I think that it depends on your orientation, your framework, your mindset as to yeah. how much risk you want to take and, and what your mission is going to be. Mm-hmm. And your timeline, I guess. I think if you're 25, yes. things are much different. Yeah, I mean, I'm 68 years old. I couldn't start. I'm almost 68. I couldn't start a company right now thinking, okay, I'm going to go buy this 300-acre piece of raw land and build a subdivision. Right. No, that's just not a framework I'd want to take right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those are the only topics I wanted to hit. Is there anything I missed or you wanted to expound on? No. Well, you know, I mean, I'll just say that for those of you that are black, young people that are just getting into our industry, I encourage you to just have an open mind and be a sponge as to everything you hear. And it's probably the best time now in history for minority people entering our industry and moving up within our industry as well. And it isn't necessarily because of, well, we have to have a token. I think people now really, really, really believe that cultural diversity adds value Mm -hmm. to companies. So let Mm -hmm. me just say that that I think that has become more than just, you know, a token thing. It's it's now a mainstream thing. ESG movement is now a real thing that's really important to a lot of people. Money is attracted to it. So people will not invest unless there's a program for that and, and that there's real diversity within companies. So the, mm-hmm. I'll just say that that's a more and more important thing. Bua saw that early on and see it and sees it growing and sees that as an opportunity. But the other thing about Bua is he's not going to slack just because he has that opportunity he's always going to work hard Mm -hmm. and and deliver quality and that's another piece of it you can't just say okay well i'm i'm a black professional and i can come in and just you know take it easy because just because who i am that's not the way he takes it and Mm -hmm. i don't think anybody should either you've Mm got to deliver you know we're it should be a meritocracy wherever you are so 
you know, that means you've got to perform. you got to work hard. And he clearly did that. He says he only sleeps five, six hours a night, gets up at four in the morning and, you know, rides his people. He, and he said one thing that the people that work with me know, I work hard, he said. Yeah. He said that. So, I, you know, that's how you're going to become successful in our industry is working hard and working smart. So finding the right opportunities to dig in and dig hard with. So that's the final message I'll have. And I'll also say uh, thank you for listening, everybody. And also please uh, know that I have a career counseling curriculum that I talked about earlier in the, you know, a little advertisement up front. I encourage you to do that. We also, Colin and I manage a community called Iconic Journey and CRE for people between the ages of 22 and 40. And if you're interested in that, reach out to me by john at coenterprises.com. Uh, and I also counsel young companies, you know, people under 40 years old that are entrepreneurs that are looking to plan and strategize their their company growth, almost from their origins even. I'm willing to, to, to help. I have a framework to help people in, in strategic planning. So those are the th- other services I offer other than offering this podcast. So Thanks again for joining us today, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks.